This is Mike Hartsfield, and you're listening to the We Gotta Know podcast. What's up, everybody, and thanks for checking out We Gotta Know podcast episode number three. Today, we have the one and only Mike Hartsfield. Mike has been a part of the California hardcore scene going back to the 80s. He's played guitar in such notable bands such as Free Will, Outspoken, Amendment 18, Done Dying, Dear Furious, and many more. Mike is the owner of New Age Records, which has released countless classic straight-edge and hardcore releases, many among my own personal favorites, since the label's humble beginnings way back in 1988. Mouthpiece, Unbroken, Strife, Chorus of Disapproval, Turning Point, Outspoken, Redemption 87, Strain, Trial, Amendment 18, Safe and Sound. The list goes on and on and continues to this day. The influence that New Age has had on hardcore is not limited to California or even North America, but the world. I was honored to talk to Mike about what's been going on with himself, life during COVID, the label, his bands, the recently launched New Age podcast, getting into rap in the 80s, and the importance of Willie D and the Ghetto Boys. With both Mike and I being huge old-school wrestling fans, we also talked in-depth about Mike's start and eventual role as the live event manager for Extreme Pro Wrestling, as well as his own hands-on involvement in one of pro wrestling's most infamous and insane matches of all time. If you're digging the podcast and would like to support us, please give us a like and give us a quick review on your listening platform of choice, which helps us out immensely. And please be sure to subscribe to be kept up to date with future episodes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Hey, Mike, can you hear me? What's happening, buddy? Not much. How are you doing, man? Good. I was just, <laughs> I just did like a three hour Zoom call with uh, some buddies. We just started that new age podcast. We just announced it today. We put up like, uh, there's like a little pilot episode. And then we did um, our first episode we did like two weeks ago. We interviewed Isaac last week. So it's fun. It's, we're just, talking a bunch of idiots so no that's awesome dude like honestly i think i listen to more podcasts these days than i do music oh i definitely do so yeah you know like no i'm stoked man especially isaac no i'm looking yeah that's that's sweet man cool how you been sweet i've been all right i guess i can't complain definitely could be worse yeah aside from not working and you know the financial that's sucking no it's been good Spending a lot of time with my daughter and doing like they're doing the podcast now again and working on some music. So no, it's all good, man. It's all good. Cool. Cool. So what have you been up to out of the ordinary since this damn COVID thing now? Um, yeah, it's been a wacky what year and two months or a year and a month. It's been good for the most part, I'm gonna say. Just spent luckily I work out of the house, so I don't really need to go anywhere, but uh, it's been good in that way. But also too a bit claustrophobic because I've kind of thought for a while like, oh, I can just work out of the house and I don't care if I leave and I can run to the grocery store and come home and then just stay in the house and be in the house and just, you know, and then, you know, a couple months in, I'm like, wow, this is kind of weird. Like I'm just in the house constantly. <laughs> so yeah. this thing I thought was kind of a blessing is kind of like, oh, well, God, I just, 
you know, I need to see the sun a little bit, but you know, for sure. Cabin fever. So yeah. Yeah. But I really do like working out of the house and I don't like traffic and I don't like crowds. So uh, it's kind of become, uh, I don't know. It's l- luckily I'm able to do that living and working in the same place constantly. It gets a little uh, monotonous. The label is full-time. It basically the way our house is set up is it's a three bedroom. There's one room that's a bedroom and two bedrooms that have industrial shelving in them. Uh, so uh, I'm doing the label full time. My wife does a roller skating uh, apparel line. And so both of our days all day are the two companies. So oh. like I print everything for the label and then I print everything for the roller skating company also. Right on. So you know, I'm not hustling trying to get screen printing work. Every once in a while, like we recently did some stuff for No Echo. They did some, some, there's some different benefit shirts going on for them. So I'm able to pick and choose some stuff that I want to do that's outside of the, you know, the, the stuff that I need to do for mail order or whatever. What's a typical day in your life, Mike, now <laughs> during these COVID, these horrible COVID times, typical day in your life? Uh, it is a mixture of uh, emails, posting to social media, getting into printing. Uh, we've got one post office that closes at five and one that closes at seven. And being how busy the day goes depends on if we hit a five o'clock or if we hit a seven o'clock. And that's pr- my life is pretty much monitored by when we get deliveries of blank shirts uh, putting mail order together and getting to a post office. That's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much my day. Um, I started doing a lot of walking in the mornings. Like I'll try to do 10,000 steps before the day starts, uh, which is something I've never, I've never really been health conscious whatsoever or even exercise conscious, I guess. Um, so it's been, that's been another good side of COVID is, you know, the fact that I have been working out of the house for a couple of years now since we had a warehouse probably four years ago. And it's it's a lot to keep up, you know. Um, it was nice because we had all the screen printing stuff spread out and we actually had offices and stuff. But, you know, it's $1,000 a month extra that you, you know, besides having the house yeah. already, it was a 1000 bucks that you get to come up with every month. And that's when we were a little more outgoing trying to get screen printing jobs because you know if you do three or four jobs that could pay the rent but then that takes away time from the companies that you're trying to focus on so right um it's been kind of a balance but um definitely since covid i've tried to focus a little more on watching calories a lot more and getting out of the house and exercising yeah that's the one positive i guess for it obviously your guys weather is a little bit nicer to be doing that it's only been seems like a few weeks that we've had decent enough weather now to you know get out i ride my bike a lot yeah which is tough when our you know fall comes and it's just rain rain, rain, oh, rain yeah, through yeah. right till the spring and usually more rain i've become uh, a real weather wimp i think over the years the minute it's dark and cloudy outside or below 50 degrees i'm just like oh my god <laughs> i just it just shuts me down for some reason. I don't know. I think you guys, you guys got it. Take it for granted. You need to spend, uh, you need to oh. tour, tour through Canada <laughs> through, yeah. through our well, end a little bit in the fall and you'll see. Oh, sh- well, but it is, it is funny because I'll do 
I'll look at the weather and I'll be like, oh, it's 70. Oh, but it'll be, you know, uh, 83 at noon. I'll wait till noon. And (laughs) I don't know what it is. Like, I'll take the heat any day of the week. It's just so much more comforting. I can't stand to be cold. It drives me crazy. I get it. I get it. Being uh, California. Okay. I'll give it to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like summer tours. It's like, oh, we broke down in Texas. And it's like, ah, it's no big deal. I'm just glad it's not snowing or or there's a breeze because that would really throw me off. Okay. Growing up, how'd you get into music? Oh, for sure. Um, I got into listening to music from my brothers, mostly. Uh, I had an immediate older brother that was mostly into heavy metal and hard rock. And then I had an older, my oldest brother was more into classic rock and that type of stuff. So I had a, a kind of balance of both, but I was definitely more interested in the Motley Crues and Judas Priests and Ozzy and, uh, you know, just line them up. That was my, my earliest music interests were, you know, basically from 10 years old on was kiss everything, kiss, anything kiss. I'd take it. Um, and then all the heavy metal I could get into. And then, uh, from there, luckily, and thankfully the Southern California heavy metal scene was out of control, with the LA clubs and the Hollywood clubs and everything that was going on was just exploding in the eighties. As far as heavy metal went, getting to, getting to go see, you know, Motley Crue before their first record came out. And uh, you know, just, it was just such a fantastic scene in that way that you could just go out and see a show on a Saturday and get 10 flyers for 10 upcoming shows that, you know, it was just like a scene that was just feeding itself with, you know, the amount of clubs and the amount of bands and the amount of people being involved and the radio stations. Like there was definitely, you know, backing in that way. So that was the, the early 80s for me. And then in high school, the interest in heavy metal started to dwindle for me. And I, I, I had friends that were, you know, getting into punk or already into punk. And it definitely seemed to me to be a more grounded music genre, I guess, uh, to where everything just seemed a little more legitimate in a way, like with MTV and, and music videos and everything that was coming out and just everything just in the heavy metal world seemed very out of touch to me. And, and it just seemed so distant in a way when I kind of stopped to think about it. Um, and I was definitely more interested in going to clubs, seeing bands that were you could reach out and touch them. And and it was just a scene that was very, it was just growing and morphing in a, in a way that seemed to include a lot more people and and seemed to be attainable to do a zine or, you know, be involved in a band or something. Of course, definitely. That's, um, we kind of go down this a bit. The, sorry. Thank God for fucking editing, not doing this live. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we definitely the same kind of uh, the same direction going from from heavy metal as a young kid and then getting into into punk and hardcore. I was just going to ask going backwards, though. What was your first like concert? My first concert was in 1983. It was Iron Maiden, the Scorpions and Girl School at Long Beach Arena. And it was just so mind blowing, uh, like Iron Maiden opening for the Scorpions, if that puts it in a yeah, kind of a sure. time frame. Uh, and just being at Long Beach Arena, I think capacity's fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand, and 
I, I had never been to a club show. You know, I just really had MTV or, you know, a, a concert video or something, if you could somehow see it. So it was just, I mean, Iron Maiden and Scorpions at their peak, you know, they, they've had a peak for a long time, but um, both of those bands at their absolute best and just being like really, really hooked on music. For myself, definitely similar. I was 10 years old and I didn't have any older brothers growing up. So I kind of found metal myself through really young, like eight years old circus. You could buy at the corner store. Yeah. And I got there yeah. and I had friends in elementary school who with older brothers. And somehow I talked my parents and I was 10 years old, December 84 to go see twisted sister and iron maiden oh. with twisted oh. sister just before they started being when they were blowing up and they were like, Molly Crew shot at the devil was when I knew metal was for me. I picked that up and like, that was yeah. it. That was it. And then, but Twisted Sister was just so huge with like much music, our MTV or whatever. Right. I was just a fanatic and just seeing that it was like, literally I, that night seeing Twisted Sister, I was just like, damn, like that's it. This is what I want to do. Yeah. So yeah. They never, never played arenas, but no, that was a huge thing. Then seeing Iron Maiden, it was like, damn, I was 10 years old. I, I, I skipped out of school, took the bus uh, into town the next day and bought wow. uh, Power Slave on tape. It was that that powerful to me but so so yeah so i feel that we were on the on the same page there definitely for sure yeah um, so how getting into punk and hardcore at school was like you're a few you're a few i think you're four or five years older than me was thrasher magazine still kind of the go i mean you had everything going on there like you said right in you know right near you so for us like i mean for me the story when i talk to other people it's always skateboarding thrasher magazine and then later on, like MTV turning on to, you know, Chrome Eggs, Agnostic Front, Bad Brain, et cetera, yeah. to do that. But what was your, um, how about this? How about, what was your first show? I'm going to say, well, luckily, um, as I mentioned, uh, guys that I knew in high school, um, that I, when, when I was kind of getting out of, of heavy metal, were into skateboarding, Thrasher Magazine. Um, and they already knew, like, for instance, my friend Paul Cranston, who plays in Free Will, uh, he's the oldest friend that I have that was like in the music scene. We were we'd started we started going to shows together. And uh, the show I remember off the top of my head was uh, Uniform Choice in 1987, 86 or 87 um, at Fender's Ballroom in oh, Long wow. Beach. And, and there was a short span of time where I saw them at Fenders and then I had seen them in Oxnard at a place called the Skate Palace. And I just remember just, and it was after uh, Pat's hair had already started growing out. That's okay, how I knew yeah. the time frame. So I think that was the start of 87. And I just remember there was nothing that I had seen that could prepare me for that energy and that connection and just it being so in your face and uh, just mesmerized me. And the show uh, in Oxnard at the Skate Palace was with Dag Nasty, uh, Dag Nasty in 87, Uniform Choice. Uh, it, was, it was all I needed to just, where do I sign? This is, this is what I need. How did you go from just being that going to shows, how long did it take for you to get into wanting to do your own band or had you already previously been doing? Cause you, there's a, a picture I saw on your Facebook or something, a pretty sweet picture of you between behind a crazy Frankenstein drum kit 
<laughs> with with uh, with big huge rock star shades and yes. uh, I, I had some cool posters i, I remember yes. so so yeah, yeah. How, when did you start playing and doing doing the band thing and writing and well uh i knew i knew i wanted to be involved and i it, it's that time when i didn't have anybody near me that was doing anything that was legitimate you know and as early as junior high uh I was buying a drum set or buying a guitar and just not knowing to, I didn't know what to do. And I was constantly buying instruments, but I didn't know how to play a beat. I didn't know, like, I was just, you know, the, the cart in front of the horse theory of like, if I just am doing this stuff enough, somehow this is going to materialize into, I'll play a song at some point. Right. Right. And, uh, it was just like I would buy a guitar and I'd get the guitar and I'd have an amp and I would just be like, what's like, I, I don't know how to start on this. And I remember being on a family trip and I had, uh, we had a motor home and I had stopped, we had stopped in whatever town. My parents loved going to Vegas and those kind of places and, and gambling and stuff. And I remember getting uh, a ride to a music store and buying a DOD overdrive pedal. And I remember speaking to the guy at the place and he's like, oh, if you're going to play heavy metal, which was at the time where I was, he's like, oh, you need distortion. You're, you're going you're gonna to need an overdrive pedal. And so I just remember going back and there was power in the, in the motorhome and I had my guitar and I had a little practice amp and I hooked this pedal up and I got feedback. And I was like, Oh, okay. And like, I hit the top string and it was distorted. And I was like, okay, like, okay, we're doing something here. We're, we're going to, we're going to put this together. And it still took me years to uh, like kind of figure out what was going on. And by the time that I was in a position to start kind of putting things together, I was playing bass. I was in high school and my friend, Paul, uh, had been trying to put bands together for a while, but he actually knew how to play and he knew how to play guitar. He knew how to structure songs and he knew like basic theory, like, Oh, okay. And he was like, I actually still had long hair at the time. And we started putting together a band he had been working on for a while. He already had riffs and, and was ready to go. And so he taught me how to play bass. Like, Oh, this is how a song is structured. This is, you know, this is how you play this thing four times. And if there's an intro, you do this. And I just remember being like, holy shit, all these things started to click. I'm like, oh, hey, we could play a song. Hey, let's play that song again to where you kind of like, you kind of get your comfort zone. And we came up with a handful of songs. We played our first show in 87. It was March of 87. And we had, I had just started going to shows. He had been going to shows prior but we played a some kind of school party function birthday party uh, thing where we were the live band that got to play. And it just really changed. Like we had a friend of ours singing and he never wrote lyrics. He always made it up as he went along, but he had such confidence that it sounded like, Oh, that's, that sounds like a real song. And, and so uh, we played this party cops came. It was crazy. Tons of people showed up. So we were now the band at high school. Like, you know, it's, we were this, you know, so we were, yeah. we were going to try to do some stuff. Summer came. Uh, I moved away. But at the same time, he and I had gotten more serious about music. And we started, 
you know, through the summer of 87, we started writing the free will demo, uh, end of 87, we were put, we put the other two guys together and we played our first real show as free will in 1988. So they were, that was your first real band then. Yeah. That was the like, Oh, these lyrics are going to be the same every time we sing them. Like that's the, that's the, the format. We ended up playing our first show in February, uh, which was an insane show. It was like the offspring agnostic front, no for an answer. You know, just it was like a full day of show. We played first, of course, uh, but like agnostic front came out here from New York City in 1988 and played this this hall in San Bernardino. But it was where like we met the reason to believe guys. We met the against the wall guys. We, you know, met the offspring guys, like hung out with agnostic front, met Craig ahead, you know, no for an answer played. Like it was just such a big show with so many people involved uh, that like it led to so many relationships that continue to this day of guys. I know through the scene from that show. That's crazy. So we're all the shows like you see these videos now and pictures of these shows. It just seems like thousands of people at Fenders and the, the Olympic Auditorium. Was that just the big, was there smaller shows going on with smaller bands, I would assume? Like what, oh, was, yeah. the, what was the draw for like, would you say for some local, some local bands at that time? Oh, it would be, well, it started as low as like backyard parties were like the, the shows everyone could get on. So Against the Wall was doing backyard parties. Free Will was doing backyard parties. Uh, all of those bands on those flyers were doing shows whenever. Even Instead yeah. was doing backyard. Like it was just, you know, kind of like if, if bands got offered shows and if they were available, they would do them. But, you know, it would go from shows of the backyard party size to uh, people would just rent a practice room at like 10 bucks an hour or something and throw a show as long as things didn't get too crazy. Um, But then like places like Fenders, you had to have, you know, either a connection or something kind of established with a demo that had, you know, done something or, or a record out. But, you know, capacity wise Fenders, I would guess would be, you know, four to 600, depending on how packed it was. But the Olympic auditorium is like 9,000 people. So like shows at the Olympic were massive. Like it was just, just a huge thing, but golden voice was doing shows constantly at, at, you know, at the Olympic. Um, But then other places started to open up, like the country club would start doing hardcore shows. They trans, they transitioned from metal shows in the eighties to hardcore shows started in, you know, the late eighties into the nineties. And um, so, but yeah, the, the bigger bands were obviously doing those, those really big shows. But I think things were bigger in a way because the shows were, the bills were so mixed. You know, you would see like, for instance, when I saw Uniform Choice and Dag Nasty, they played with the butthole surfers, you know, and it was just kind of like that kind of a show could happen then. It wouldn't happen in a million years now. But back then it was like, there could be a hardcore band and two punk bands and it, it could just be that mixed and each band would draw their crowd. Yeah. So you would get, you know, five or four or five scenes instead of one or two. Um, so you could book a show at the Olympic and it would, it would not be a financial disaster. It would, it would pay off. Yeah, for sure. No. Yes. Seeing some of those old videos and stuff is just, is just crazy to see that. Yeah. The Olympic was like, I saw, Oh God, it was, I saw Slayer and Blast. 
at the Olympic, you know, and it was just like, you could see anthrax and DRI or whoever, like there was just those, you know, bigger size bands that, you know, you would see some smaller bands get on those shows, but those shows were huge. Man, yeah, it's just incredible. Some of those lineups, like you say, seeing, yeah, like, like you say, it would never happen, never happen, you know, present day, but wow, <laughs> like, okay. Um, oh, was the, uh, was the scene as violent as everyone, as, as it's perceived to be, or as, as the legends of the, the violence at these shows grown over the, over the years? Like, just craziness. Uh, there were, um, yeah, there was a tremendous amount of violence, especially places like Fenders, the Olympic Auditorium, um, just insanity. Because the benefit to booking mixed bills like that is you would get completely different crowds every time right. um, to where now, you know, four or five band shows, those bands generally all know each other. They are generally pulling the same type of crowds yeah. um, to where... Fenders in 1987 would be six different gangs in there, plus a bunch of straight edge kids, plus some random punk guys, plus, you know, like every other group, as well as some legitimate gangs that would just be there to terrorize. And uh, it was it was wild. I saw guys get just obliterated, you know, or you would see people passed out the entire show. And you just had no idea, like they would be off in a corner. I remember seeing, uh, seeing anthrax at the Olympic and there was just a dude under the stairs the entire time. <laughs> and it was just like watching the show after every band, the lights would come on. I'd look over and he's still there. And like during anthrax, I saw him get up and stumble outside. And I was just like, that's, that's just wild. But yeah, I, I saw, and especially like Pat Dubar was a guy who was not letting things just fly. Like if he saw guys getting picked on and stuff and, yeah. and even a lot of the security guys like Regis from the chorus was a security guy at defenders for a long time. And if they ever saw kids getting picked on, it was, it was time to jump over the barricade and, and settle things. And I saw Dubar, Pat Dubar, just, you know, guys go going crazy and him being in the mix and just punching guys. Okay, let's talk yeah. about let's talk about straight edge. How did you get into straight let's edge? Let's do it. All right, straight edge. Um, straight edge. Well, I learned about edge in high school. Um, probably my third year in high school. I believe it's 86, 85, 86. It's probably 86. And um, I was just immediately enamored with it. Just my introductions were, uh, you know, friends at high school as I was getting out of heavy metal and really uh, understanding hardcore and punk and, and how the two uh, had similarities, but, but major differences and uh, finding uniform choice, minor threat, uh, all of that in one was just, I, I thought it was incredibly empowering you know, like nobody I was around was saying no to anything. And not that I hung out with uh, anybody that was wild or crazy, but it was just like in my high school, we had a smoking section at the high school where people could go smoke, you know, and it was just very part of, you know, 1986. And, For sure. and um, 
I had grown up in a house where drinking was totally the norm and parents had smoked. And I, besides the fact I had asthma, you know, it's like, I probably shouldn't be smoking or be around secondhand smoke. In my early days of high school, I tried drinking and it was just, I didn't have that one incredible experience that when you're, you know, you get a six pack of beer and you're like, you're 15 or 14 or whatever. And you've got these, you know, wild times. Like I just had more fun going to shows, listening to music, um, attempting to play music, going to clubs, doing stuff. And I just never thought sitting around and drinking and doing anything like that was good for me. I thought there was shit I needed to do. Like, you know, when I was in junior high, I started a heavy metal fanzine and I was like, you know, fucking, you know, getting demos of like when poison put out their first demo, like I reviewed the poison demo in my heavy metal fanzine. Like I was wanting to go out and like take photos and just do different shit and experience stuff. The few times I had ended up at parties where there was drinking or whatever going on, I just remember going, let's go do something like this is just, you know, I never, never really, it just was never for me. So it was a super, super easy transition. And, you know, it was the, it's literally the easiest thing I've ever done, been beneficial in so many ways. And it's funny too, because going through the wrestling business, like who, you know, is straight edge in the wrestling business, especially behind the scenes or dealing with different things. And it's like, I remember there was a few guys that I remember making fun of me for being straight edge. And this is yeah. as we're, we're adults. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't remember making fun of you for anything, but you're insecure enough to make fun of me because you must have some issues. Cause I don't. And, yeah, no doubt. you know, and, and it's just funny thinking like, you're bringing up straight edge. You're bringing up these things that are bothering you and that's part of my life and that's got nothing to do with you. Um, but also it was great too, though. Cause like working for XPW, like I would be thrown the keys in a lot of situations because they knew I wasn't a liability like other people who would drink or do yeah. whatever. Like, you know, I would be, I, I think there was a lot of times where I had extra responsibility because it was like, well, you know, I could be responsible in other ways, but at least substance wasn't one of my, my For sure. responsibilities. Right. So, right. Uh, so it's just always been a benefit. And I think it's incredibly empowering. You played in a ton of bands over the years. What have been your favorites? Uh, let's see. I would say probably the more recent bands. Um, as far as right now, I play in Free Will, which is the band that Paul Cranston and I started with a couple other guys in 1987. Uh, we were around from 87, 88, 89 to uh, we broke up at that point or I actually left. They were doing some other stuff. Um, and then we got together, I want to say 2016, um, did a few things, kind of wrote some new stuff and, and we've been active the entire pandemic. We've been active writing uh, a new record. Um, so that's really free will is my full-time band currently. Um, but two of the bands that I did that were probably most, most rewarding to me as an attempt at being a musician were uh, 
Dear Furious and Amendment 18. And uh, Amendment 18 or A18 was the band that I did the most in as far as touring, recording, uh, longevity, and the satisfaction, I guess, uh, is one way to say it, as being a songwriter. Just because uh, there there were a lot of band members that were coming and going there were certain times when we hit, like, for instance, when we did Europe the second time, uh, we did five weeks and just like a machine. Like, you know, from doing tours that there's times when you build up that, oh, you're just naming it and it's less effort and more enjoyable because the stress goes away and you're just really nailing it kind of like a second nature. Totally, yeah. And um, A18 was smaller shows and harder tours than some of the things I've done previously, but looking at what we recorded and, and some of the shows we did play and like doing videos and, and shit we had a lot with it was A18 and then uh, when we did Dear Feast, the band um, was really rewarding because I knew it was technically the Okay. Okay. So yeah, with A18, it was definitely the most rewarding as being a songwriter or, you know, having consistency as a band, even though we had a revolving door with uh, some members, but really was, was one of my favorite things. And um, recording was always a lot of fun. And especially at the end, uh, our last two records were, I think our best material, but also to joining, um, and forming the band Dear Furious, that was very rewarding in the fact that joining that band, I knew out of five members, I was the worst musician, which was great. With joining and forming the band Dear Furious, that was was, uh, really rewarding because I knew going into it that I was the worst musician in the band. And play guitar alongside Brian Mannery and to play with all of those guys I think are really superior at their instruments um, was and I looked forward to needing to play better and learning you know because Brian that I would have never owned because I'm not that good challenge and to step up my game to to come up to their level um but right now doing the new free will stuff and where we're headed i'm super excited about because um you know to be playing with those guys after all these years and still writing new material and still feeling like we're we're actually accomplishing something is really cool yeah no that's that's awesome you began that you began there and you're presently there that's right so what happened with dear furious sorry i won't put this in if you don't want but like oh no it's fine uh dear furious was a lot of talent and that excludes me and uh it was some incredible potential and just a like an overall lack of maybe seriousness or urgency to get anything done um it was just a bunch of good guys with different schedules and different priorities. And, you know, shockingly, we recorded the seven inch, the first four, the first four songs and just things were kind of, we were, 
you know, off to the races in a way. And just coordinating schedules and stuff was really uh, a task. Um, just trying to book shows or book rehearsals even. Um, and we were really on the way out and we were for months just, you know, just non-existent or not functioning. And we ended up recording the two last songs we did, um, one, one Stone, Two Birds, and, and our complex for just a di- two songs that are digitally available. Um, we did those and it's like, okay, like we're capable of this let's let's keep doing things and so we yeah. had a we had a europe tour um on the horizon that would have happened during covid like it would have been june of last year yeah and it just uh, we just couldn't put it together on our side and so uh it was just effort that needed i needed to put elsewhere so thankfully the free will guys were sitting around and and wanted to wanted to be serious too so uh, that, that's what we've been focusing on with uh, writing a new record. We used to, we, we were doing, uh, we started practicing um, seriously in early 2020, just writing towards a new record. And um, we would just do these COVID lockdown rehearsals where we, we would get together on a Friday and just stay locked down for a whole weekend. And everyone was just being very cautious and, uh, you know, attentive to their situations and their well-being, and then we would get together for these uh, long weekend practices, and ended up writing a record. We started recording in December, uh, and we're actually finishing it this weekend. And that that'll be coming out hopefully when. Okay. Hoping by the end of the year, and then okay. uh, we're going to take a stab at going to Europe in 2022 is our hope and prayer. All righty. Okay, <laughs> cool. Okay, so we get about, we'll get on to New Age Records then. You've put out yes. a ton of classic hardcore records on New Age Records since you started in 1988. What made you decide to want to do a record label in the first place? Um, I think it was a lot to do with my excitement of being involved in a newer scene that you know I had been a couple years into. I guess starting in 86 and then 87, 88, and the label started uh, at that point. And it was a lot of growing up in the heavy metal scene. There was a lot of DIY that I saw there as well as in the hardcore and punk scene where guys were starting record labels and running record labels. And uh, the LA trade papers were filled with, hey, you want 500 records, get it pressed here. If you want 1,000 records, get it pressed here. And there were these package deals you could just, you know, it wasn't cookie cutter as well as as much as it was uh, just these, you know, items on a, on a menu of like these just different offers that you could yeah. get, different options. And so I just remember seeing 1,007 inches and however much it was, I wish I still had the ad, but I just remember looking at a thousand seven inches in the price and thinking, is this something I could do? Like I go to record stores and I buy records. Yeah. Like, could I be on the other side of that and actually manufacture records and bring them to the store and sell them alongside the other records that I'm currently buying and listening to? And so um, I called a couple pressing plants and just got the 
run around as a guy that doesn't didn't know terminology for anything and you know oh what's lacquer mastering like who gives a shit i didn't i didn't if they would have told me what it was i wouldn't have known what it was yeah and uh I just, I called this one place and they seemed super nice and they didn't seem annoyed that I was a a kid that didn't know what he was talking about. And so uh, I sent them however much money and a master tape and some label artwork and got a time frame of when my records would be done and shipped back to me. And uh, I remembered getting the boxes of records, just like, oh my God, like, this is it. Like, this is my record. Like, wow, this is crazy. And I had done the label art for a small hole on the seven inch. Mm -hmm. And what I got, I opened up was a big hole. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, this looks like a 45 my parents would have, you know, like I need that small hole. I, I, what am I going to do with this? And I just remember being so bummed out and it, it, ruined the label art because there was stuff missing that this hole had punched through and i'm like nobody at the plant like realized hey maybe we need to call this guy and uh, i just remember going fuck man i gotta i'm gonna call these guys and see what they'll do and i called them and they said oh yeah yeah okay yeah we should yeah just send them back so i was like really and so i shipped them back to them and you know a month later small hole record showed up and I was like, I couldn't believe that they accepted them back. I thought they would have just told me to, you know, go screw myself. And um, so then I had a, a, a local printer print up the covers and inserts and I just got record bags at the store. And I was like, all right, we got a seven inch. And I just went around selling them to stores and ran into a couple stores like, Oh, we'll put them on consignment. Then I'd be like, Oh, okay, great. And then I'd go back a month later and they're at a, business and i was like okay so you got my records then you got the money <laughs> yeah it's, it's like okay and i mean there was there was a ton of those experiences just learning the hard way on yeah you know is how you know and, and there's there's just such a fine line between really trying to build the bands and make their shows bigger and better and and hopefully open up our opportunities for them to do things and and trying to be a businessman and, and run this record label as something that needs to recoup what it's spent. And if it makes something extra, that's great, but you've got to recoup what you spent. Uh, was that new age? Number one, walk proud. That so was new age. Number one. Yeah. And okay. and they were just a band that I saw that I loved. And I thought that they were working really hard and they were playing good venues and good shows. And they just, always delivered as a live band their recordings were great um and they were they were just um a lot of the bands i was friends with they were like two years ahead of just with experience and and just musicianship and i mean they wrote great songs and super great guys and that's that's all i was looking for um okay so how many years is it into now sorry i'll edit Uh, this my learning disabilities isn't the simple math. Okay, I can add it in. So this, that many years into the, into the label now, how many releases are you at? We are at the pressing plant. Currently we are up to, uh, yeah, I'm going to say 89 because we've got test pressings coming for one and that would be 89. Uh, actually released would be uh, new age 88 is out. 
Do you have a top three new age releases of your own, your own personal favorites? Uh, I do have favorites and they're for different reasons because, uh, you know, there's of course the classics that the top ones come to mind. If it's, you know, unbroken life, love regret or the turning point LP or lifetime or mouthpiece. And, and all of those releases are very special and it's, more to do with the time and the people involved and the experiences with, you know, uh, going to pick up the turning point records and in my, you know, Ford Escort, which is a small little economy car and just going over some railroad tracks and bottoming out my car. Cause it was filled with so many records and, uh, you know, if whatever it might be for some of the releases of, of, you know, uh, working with Jordan Cooper on some of the er early stuff. Like he helped me with uh, like the unbroken uh, you won't be back seven inches. Whereas like my first release that had a color cover, you know, that we laid out in Photoshop and Quark express, you know, like that there's a lot of the times that are special. Um, We were discussing this uh, last week on, on our podcast that there were times when, through technology, the releases are dated because of the recording technology that was changing during the time. For sure, yeah. And like kind of like when the master tapes were changing from quarter-inch masters to, you know, to DAT tapes or, you know, CDRs and like that kind of stuff. And like yeah. pinpointing that um, Unbroken Ritual was like the last thing. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It would be uh, Outspoken The Current, I think, was the last release that we got on a reel and the grip friction burn fatal was the first thing that was on a dat tape. So like there's, there's so many time frames and there's so many things that are kind of special, but um, there's so many releases that I listen to all the time, you know, like one being uh, the countdown to life full length record, you know, govern yourself accordingly is, is a record I listen to constantly. And it's a record many people never heard that are new age fans. You know, it didn't come out on vinyl. There's a lot like it's a CD. Yeah. They were from, you know, Oregon and uh, they're just such a great band. And that record is so amazing, but you know, it never came on blue vinyl. So yeah. you, know, you won't see a picture of it because it's a CD. And so, um, there's, there's just a, so many releases that are special in multiple ways. And as I'm sure you know, you put out two bands that are very near and dear to me being Strain and Trial. Mm-hmm. Anything about, about, about those? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, and it was interesting too, I remember Trial being uh, a band that I was so excited about because they, to me, came off as a band that was really excited about Straight Edge. And, and, and um, Tim ended up playing guitar for the A18 Europe tour. And those dudes, I just, you know, and Greg, they're just such fantastic people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like the releases are special, but it's the things beyond that. Like, of course, that, yeah. you know, it, it's like, oh, yeah, the record's great, but those people are even better. Um, and I remember the strain record just being above and beyond with production musicianship, the way that record was delivered, I thought was just 
mind blowing. And, and them coming off, I remember they had come off a Europe tour and I was just like, wow, this is a really hardworking band that sounds amazing and they're just going to do great shit, you know? And I just was really so excited about that release. Yeah, it was too too bad. I'm sure you're, you'd be in agreement with that, that if they just would have toured more and like oh. so many bands, if we could have made it to the East Coast, yes. you know, they would yeah. have, they would have went on to big things. Yeah. And, and Strain is also like such an interesting band because they're a band that you hear people nerd out about like Strain. Oh my God. And they get into like the details because that one song, blah, 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 and the guitar part. And like, there's not too many new age bands, at least that I hear feedback about that people just get into the weeds on strain about like just different nuances and like how heavy this part is and how great this part is. And they're one of those bands that people just love every nuance of every song. It's fantastic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. They're de- that's cool to hear that you the, out your way in, in California there, that there are, Oh yeah. Um, the people feel that way. I thought maybe, you know, I didn't even realize that, but no, that was definitely one of the, one of the heaviest hardcore records ever. For oh sure. um, yeah. And, and it was funny too, because I kind of put them on a, pl- like a kind of a level playing field with like mean season or unbroken, like new age gets this, uh, I don't want to say it's a rap, but kind of a response, I guess, for being mostly a mouthpiece kind of record label, like where we were doing, we've done heavier stuff. We've done, you know, more, you know, uh, youth crew-ish type hardcore. I hate to use the term, Um, but Unbroken is heavy. Mean Scene isn't as heavy. Strain is fucking heavy. But Strain was the band that had the production. I, I guess I don't want to discredit Mean Season's recording. That re- recording's fantastic. But that Strain record is well produced. And it's when I so say good, yeah. And when I say well produced, I don't mean a lot of production was put into it because you can tell that the musicianship is there, and that's what yeah. makes it. That's what makes it that's what they produce. The musicians produce this record. Yeah, for sure. And I'll leave, I'll edit this out, but I can remember I was so bummed because I listened to the burden album. I think that sounds pretty good, uh-huh. but we went the first seven inch we did, we recorded with Blair Calababa. Who's who, uh-huh. did the, who did the strain, who did the last two, the strain album. And then the last EP. And I don't know, just being, I'm not that I was super young when we did that, but thinking, Oh, it's going to sound so fucking good. And it was done on an eight track real to real and then just being so bummed like not bummed out i was stoked on it but then you listen to strain and it's like fuck man and then the album which is it was all i mean everything you said about um about strain too but mushroom studios was this legendary studio that they recorded at yeah and like well of course you you know and um the of being on the the tape with that actually having analog tape and the fact that they're this world-class studio, I mean, made such, such the difference. Like I said, the burden album, I think sounds pretty good, but when you, but I guess you could say that for so many albums, right. Regardless of time. Like, I mean, there's just that, that album is just so huge. Is mushroom studio still around? No. No. Oh, it's closed. Yeah. It's gone. I think it's, it's maybe even bulldozed by now. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. At this point, I still can't believe that Strain don't have a discography and Trial don't have a dis- discography yet. Right, right. Um, I've 
thought about that. And it's kind of weird because I've been moving so far forward and wanting the newer bands to get a lot of my attention. But for sure, um, it's it's kind of weird because so many of the older catalog pieces, especially Mouthpiece and Unbroken, have been pillaged through and, and gone away. But uh, Strain is one of those things that hasn't had that happen yet. So um, I'm. We just did a deal with Redemption eighty seven to re release the self titled LP. Nice. So that's that's actually at the pressing plant, um, and we've changed pressing plants. So I've got to retest press everything and re oh, re uh, process and plate everything because all that shit was lost when the local processing and plating place went out of business. 1999 i got a letter from them hey you've got 60 days to come pick up your shit i was like fuck the label i fucking hate running a label this thing's (laughs) a big piece of shit i was like never again never again and so all the masters for all that shit went away so i'd be starting from scratch with whatever i do um so that's definitely an option is the strain record because it's 25 years too right this year's 25 years it is yeah you're totally right Wow. Interesting. Okay. That changes things a lot. Huh? Uh, yeah. But Strain is also one of those bands that I think about, oh, repressing that record. I think of like, well, what it would take to get vinyl made again. And I think, oh, I wonder if we could get rid of them. And then I hear recently in the last two weeks, people going, because that fucking Strain record. And I'm like, how come I don't hear from like you guys a lot? Like I'm hearing from people I know, you know, but I'm sure there's the people I don't hear from that are equally saying, my God, that fucking strain record. So it's definitely something to consider. And I got to jump on it if I'd like to make a 25-year version of anything happen. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I'm sure it would do well. And I'm sure that's probably been out of out of press for years and years and years. <laughs> yeah, I've probably got 15 CDs that are just in my garage that are in a box. Um, but I've got no... I, I've probably got five copies on purple that don't have covers like just five pieces of purple vinyl oh wow that like you know too bad i don't have jackets because i'm sure somebody would appreciate those but for sure um, yeah that's something to totally think about awesome okay okay let's talk about acting according to imdb <laughs> you're credited with having been in 13 productions as well as editor cinematographer producer and writer how did you get into acting <laughs> Well, I I don't want to discredit people that actually do acting, um, but uh, I've got some friends that uh, have wild imaginations and and they let me uh, have fun with them. Um, I've got a friend named Evan Jacobs who makes uh, micro budget films and it just, he's got an incredible imagination and an incredible work ethic that I admire. And so um, in the mid nineties, he uh, started making uh, films on his own. And anytime I could be a part of one, I would do it. And so, um, you know, the early nineties into like 2000, I was getting into a lot of production stuff with producing or associate producing or, you know, working a lot of music videos. And uh, I worked with Darren Doan, who was a director who did God Money with Rick Rodney. And and he did some really incredible stuff. And I learned a ton of a ton of stuff with him. And his work ethic was fantastic. And he was a guy who would just 
work his way into any situation and out of any situation just to get a project completed. So uh, he was one of those guys that, you know, along with Evan and uh, Isaac, who was in the chorus, like the, the three of us had a lot of early experience in the early 2000s. And New Age actually co-produced a movie called 42K, which uh, I'm not sure where it's available. I think there might be a little bit of it on YouTube. Um, but I really got bit by the bug to be behind the camera and into producing, which is why I liked the side of wrestling I got into so much because it was really right. like not being in front of the camera. Cause I don't think that I have any strengths there. It's behind the curtain, making things hopefully look good through the early two thousands. We did four, two K I played a couple of parts in that movie. Um, I did a movie called black Friday, which uh, you know, I get shot along with, uh, <laughs> you know, Frank from Snapcase. We both took a bullet. Uh, so there was a lot of music involved, you know, uh, wrestling people or music people or film people and just a lot of production things going on. And then uh, as Evan got more into uh, making movies constantly, um, I was just available more and more. And so uh, I would work with him any chance I got. So uh, did some extra work and and just did, you know, acting with Evan whenever I could. And, and just the fact that we're at our age. And when I say we, it's Isaac and Evan and I uh, are just able to get together for a weekend and goof off and have fun and eat pizza and make a movie and just crack each other up and crack ourselves up. And so it's uh, that's really the acting I do. I, I don't think I could ever get a legitimate acting job if I tried. <laughs> I think they would look at my resume, even though it is on IMDb and go, so uh, what is this death toilet movie? And I would just go into a long speech about how much fun we have and, you know, just the silliness of all of it. So okay, uh, cool. yeah, acting, acting is getting together with my friends and being incredibly goofy. Right on. Top three albums of all time. Oh, okay. A two come to mind immediately. Oh, third. Okay, yeah, there we go. Uh, the Crumb Suckers Life of Dreams record nice. is, is just a flawless record, and it's completely stood the test of time. Um, it's a record I got in high school, and my brother, my older brother, Denny, got it for me. And I just remember he went into a record store and the way he explained it to me was he told the guy <laughs> what I was into. And the guy said, he's going to love this and gave him the crumb suckers record. And it's just, I've played it to bits. Um, that record along with the embrace LP is just another one. These records have all been uh, my go-tos for since my, my introduction to music, I think that like had real substance to it. Um, and along with those two, I would say, uh, I'd say verbal assault trial. That record's just perfect from start to finish. Excellent. Verbal assault and amenity were the first, um, the first hardcore show I ever. Oh, went really? To. Oh, wow. Were the, yeah. The first real hardcore bands, I guess I saw and, uh, amenity yeah. was so, so cool, but oh yeah. Like, um, Oh fuck, my hands late. <laughs> um, the long-haired guitar player dude was literally like came up and talked to me and my oh, friend. Oh Tim, was like yeah. such a good guy. And we're been friends on Facebook and talk. You know, like that made the huge difference for me about be, being cool to be, you know on tour and playing with everything. Just such a cool, 
such a oh cool, yeah uh, cool and still straight edge too he is yes. still straight edge amazing yeah. amazing and and verbal assault charged the charged me i was wearing like a slayer shirt and long hair charged me a buck a sticker yeah and they gave my friend who was like a skater guy like 10 for a buck oh so i was bummed out like well i was to this day like fuck oh. verbal assault <laughs> no, no not really but but yeah, was it was, a mean? Was it a mean roadie, or was it some? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember. This was a long time ago, man. A long time ago. But I always remember that. It's fucking amenity. I like amenity better, anyways. So, what was that in Seattle? No, it was in. Um, it was just in the outskirts of Vancouver. Oh, really? Yeah, it was Ameni- that. It, wow. Yeah, Ameni- I guess amenity was on tour with them, and it was wow. head head first. Oh my god! Was gosh. the Vancouver band that Eric from Strain played guitar in, and then oh. the other guys later ended up be, um, forming Brand New Unit. I don't know if you ever heard them. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah. It was kind of that was like the pre kind of band to them or whatever. And yeah, that was that was my first wow. my first real hardcore show. Yeah. God, I would have never thought Amenity made it that far north. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. I that's totally shocking. Yeah, and I still had Gosh. the I still had the sh- the gray shirt up until I up until I moved a couple of years ago. Oh wow! I still had it paper thin, but yeah, such a good band. Yeah. Amenity is a band that sh- should have done a lot more, and they should be remembered more for what they did do because that's the birth, as far as I know, of San Diego hardcore. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the the podcast, Mike. The podcast, the new um, age podcast, the new age podcast. Uh, I've got some fantastic friends named Nicholas and Ben, who uh, also both play in the band Red Bait. And they uh, I kind of mentioned like, God, it would be great if we did a podcast. Like, I really want somebody to do a podcast. And they were like, yeah, let's do a podcast. And and so I I kind of take a little bit more of a backseat with it. They uh, are scheduling guests and and on the ball way more than I am. Um, they just kind of ask me stuff now and then, but they're they're the blood and guts of it all. And and Nicholas hosts it. Uh, ben does all the editing, and it's called uh, it's called Here Till It Ends. And it's uh, we've got two episodes up right now, and it's a lot of bullshitting, a lot of jokes, a lot of road stories or tour, tour stories. Um, and then nuances of record pressing and, uh, you know, different, different stories about all that different, uh, all that stuff. Um, I think we've recorded four episodes, two are up already. Uh, we recorded one tonight with uh, a couple of fantastic guys and, and they've already lined up like four or five more episodes and it's great dudes. I'm so excited about, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm very stoked to, uh, I'm very stoked. Like I was saying earlier to, to listen to that mic for sure. Yeah. And, it's a uh, really, uh, it's a really loose format. Um, and I hope, you know, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, we're not trying to conquer the world with, you know, too much, too much seriousness. I, I hope there's some good information and some good stories in there. For sure. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Do you want to name a couple, or I don't know, some new bands that you've been listening to that you're digging? Yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, well, strangely enough, like we were talking earlier, just, I listen to so many podcasts now, uh, mostly wrestling, some hardcore. Uh, yeah. I've steady diet, a podcast, even walking every morning, trying to get some exercise in. It's like, everyone's like, yeah, I listen to Pantera or yeah, I listen to Slayer. And I'm like, yeah, I listen to Jim Cornette and I hear him talk about like, you know, mid South or whatever. Uh, so, I mean, I listen to the bands on the label. Like I listen to red bait and I listen to life force and I listen to Vanguard and, you know, it's, uh, 
it's the stuff I'm really excited about. And, and, and I listen to the demos that get sent in and they're so great. We get a lot of great stuff. Um, demo wise and and we can't do all of it just because a label doesn't uh think that your band is the right fit is is never any way to measure your success or how good or band bad your band is because obviously we get we get more stuff than we can put out Um, yeah but like the new decline stuff is just fantastic i i can't wait to get that out and the new god it's seriously like i listen to everything on the label the the new dividing line stuff is fantastic i can't wait to get that stuff out and besides that and like the the old stuff i listen to and and just everything on no echo like anything that pops up on the no echo side i listen to so that's pretty much my exposure to bands obviously no one's going to shows i'm not seeing some band play with another band and being like oh i never heard of this band and and getting turned on to stuff. I mean, literally the internet is our show now and is our, yeah. our exposure to new music. One more question. Give me a short, a short spiel on the importance of the ghetto boys. Oh, the ghetto boys. Uh, my interest in rap music, hip hop music started in high school, right around the same time as hardcore. Uh, a buddy of mine named Dana Dare, who just always seemed to have the new music and just always was a step ahead of us for what was coming out. And I just remember being in high school and him having the NWA, the first 12-inch EP, and then uh, straight out of Compton and just being so amazed by the energy and rebellion involved in in hip-hop and rap and just thinking like dude i'm listening to hardcore and punk and like so many genres or at least all the genres i was interested in had like this revolutionary kind of vibe to it and very diy and you know just just seemed so interesting to me so in my early exploration of rap hearing NWA and just going, dude, where do I sign? This is fantastic. And, and then being in a situation of like, my parents can't hear this <laughs> and like, I'm getting ready to leave high school and it's like, oh, like, you know, I've got something I got to play low and, you know, just, and, and like, I'm a heavy metal kid getting into NWA and like, it just yeah, go a long haired dude who's getting into punk, getting into hardcore, getting into hip hop, like all this different stuff at the same time. And then years later, you know, early nineties, I remembered, uh, my friends that were in, uh, the band black spot who had gone on tour. I remember one of the guys going, dude, there was the stuff we were listening to on the tour. Like somebody had a cassette and we do, we couldn't stop listening to it. It was so great. And I was like, you got to find out who it was. Cause I was just so enamored with hip hop. Like I just wanted to just anything new. Oh, you think that's interesting? I got to hear it. Oh, you got something new. I got to hear it. And I just remember him going, God, the guy's name was like Billy or Willie or something like, oh, I'll find out. And I just remember Chris Lohman calling his buddy, whoever it was in black spot. I don't remember. And I remember him just holding the phone going, Hey, who was that guy we were listening to on the road? <gasps> Willie D. And I just, a light bulb went on over my head and I'm like, yeah. Willie D. Okay. I got to, I got to figure this out. I got to go to the record store. I got to, I got to do what I got to do. And because I wasn't really getting recommendations at that point on like, right. oh, this is something like it was just whatever I was finding on my own. And I remember only knowing Willie D as a solo artist. I had heard of the Ghetto Boys, but had never run into any of their stuff, um, except hearing my mind's playing tricks on me. But, you know, like I was just, oh my God, what is this Willie D guy? And so I got the contract 
Controversy album, which is pretty raw and not for all ages. Definitely. And I just remember being so like, it, it was kind of like NWA years before that obviously the Controversy Willie D record was already old at the point I got it, but it was right alongside and, and the early Ghetto Boy stuff is right in the same time frame as, as it's late 80s. It's, you know, you know, we can't be stopped and, and the earlier Ghetto Boy stuff alongside Straight Outta Compton. So I was just, oh my God, Willie D and just found every record I could and then got into every Ghetto Boys record I could and just fell in love with the Ghetto Boys and then just like started studying the records. Like, okay, when did Willie D leave the group? Okay, then he came back in the group. Okay, and then they did these reunion records and then like just every step of the way and then ended up up going and seeing him a few times. Um, Oh man, but- but my my super fanboy comes out with uh, a story I'll bore you with real quick. When MySpace was in its glory days, I started a Willie D page because he didn't have one. And um, I just uh, was super, super into him more as a solo guy than I did the Ghetto Boys as a group. Like I just, Willie D is my guy, Willie D is my guy. So I made a fan page and uh, put it up there and then we just post pictures or do whatever, very MySpace days. And then I got a direct message one day. Hey, give me a call. And it was a 703 number, which is Houston, Texas. And it was signed Will. And I was like, somebody's pranking me. (laughs) Like, okay, like, let me guess. Willie D is contacting me through MySpace. I just remember going, I responded, okay, I'll call you tonight. And I called the number and a guy answered. I'm like, yeah, is Willie D there? And he's like, hold on a minute. And I could hear music playing in the ground and it sounded like a studio. Like I could hear like, you know, the tape stopping. And I was just like, did I just call Willie D at the studio? And he's like, hello. And I was like, hey, uh, Willie D, my name is Mike Hartsfield. And I uh, started a Facebook page or not even Facebook, MySpace page. Uh, And, you know, and he was like, oh, hey, how's it going? Dude, I'm so behind, you know, and with social media, I thank you for keeping my name out there and stuff. and, And just being like, holy shit, like, this is fucking crazy. And um, just, you know, I, I go, hey, if you want the page, I'll send you all the sign and stuff. <gasps> you do that for me? Oh, man. And he was just he just super thankful. Oh, man, that's so great. And he was just very, very thankful and appreciative. And, and so, um, so years later, I got, I, I heard that they were coming to town and uh, they were going to play the House of Blues. And Rob Moran from Unbroken and I had become enormous Willie D fans uh, to the point where Rob Moran had made us t-shirts at Kinko's <laughs> that had like a full color iron on on the front. And we had these matching Willie D shirts. And there's a picture in the controversy record that if you're familiar with it or not, yeah, it's yeah. a picture. Yeah. It's a picture of him holding up a middle finger mm-hmm. and it's just this photo of him. He's wearing like overalls and the back of the shirt had this photo on it. Huge photo of Willie D yeah. flipping off the camera and the front had the, uh, the going out like a soldier artwork on it. And so Willie D's coming to town. Rob Moran can't make it. He's literally got, if I'm not mistaken, a work party for Christmas and he can't get out of it. And I'm like, dude, the ghetto boys are reunited and they're coming to town. And so he couldn't make it. So Isaac and I go and we got, uh, I had a friend who did the booking there and I go, dude, just 
I need to buy tickets. Don't give me free tickets. I'm very happy to pay for it. He goes, dude, tickets will be at the box office. I was like, all right. So we get the tickets and then there's two backstage passes in there also. So I was like, fuck, am I really going to embarrass myself meeting Willie D? And so uh, I had of of, had of course brought a poster, two or three records, uh, an eight by 10, just like all the ridiculous super fan yeah. shit that I would have. And so, um, so we go to the concert. It's just incredible. Like just such a fantastic show. Bushwick, Willie D, Scarface are all there. And so I told Isaac, Hey, the minute the show's over, I'm running down Sunset Boulevard to find my truck and get all my stuff out. And then I'm going to run all the way back to the house of blues and then we're going to go backstage and I'm going to make my best attempt to meet Willie D. And so, so I did all that stuff. And then we got to the upstairs backstage door and uh, I had of course brought a camera because I wasn't going to miss this moment. The door opens and Chris Rock is there and and I'm just like looking past him to totally don't even realize yeah. Chris Rock is there. And he's like, Hey man, you guys, what's going on? And I just, just in the zone, just looking, looking, looking at everybody moving around. Where's, where's Willie D. And I saw some guys kind of hustle off to uh, the side room and this dude pops his head out. And he's like, what can you do? What, what can I do for you? And I'm like, Oh, Hey, uh, is Willie D in there? He's like, yeah, what you need? And I go, Oh, I just, uh, I just if you could sign some stuff for me. It's like, okay, I'll be right back. And so I'm just like sitting there like a dipshit, like with armfuls of memorabilia and shit. And the guy pops his head out again. Hey, come on in. So I'm like, oh, just go in. And uh, <laughs> and I look across the room and there's Willie D and he's, he's hanging out with some chick and she's playing a piano. And, and he's like, uh, hey, Will, hey, come, come meet this guy. He wants to wants to talk to you. And Willie D just stopped what he was doing, walked all the way across the room and goes, hey man, what's going on? And then he looks and I've just got armfuls of posters and shit. He's like, oh, what do you got there? And I was like, oh, hey, could you sign this? And he had done a solo record called Play With Your Mama. And it's a fantastic record. As a super fan, it's my favorite record he released. Start to finish, every song is great. And I had the promo poster for this rather obscure record and I unroll it and his eyes just open. He's like, Oh, that's when I was doing my own shit, man. You're for real. And he kept saying you're for real. And I'm like, I am. Okay. And so he signed it. He was like, Oh man, like I didn't have ghetto boy stuff. I had Willie D stuff. So he was just like super, super excited. He signs the poster. What else you got? And I had the 12 inch singles for that same record. And he's just his eyes light up. Oh man, you're for real. Sign and sign on the labels on all the records. And uh, he's like, Oh, let me, I got some eight by tens here. And he's signing eight by 10. He's doing just the nicest guy, just super rad, super cool. And like the fact that he had left talking to some attractive woman on the other side of the room to come talk to me, like you could have told me to piss off, you know, like yeah. but he's just, Oh, he's what are you doing? He's, very interested in what I had and what I had to say and just, you know, talking about all of his stuff. And he just, the fact that I had, I had made an attempt and was interested in his solo records, I think. And especially like the obscure ones, like that was on his own label and stuff. And so, uh, I started a conversation with him like, Hey, how come you don't have any merch tonight? He's like, Oh man, I don't, I don't keep track of any of that stuff. And he was just kind of like, ah, that's whatever. And I, I go, cause when you don't make merch, we got to make our own. And I opened my windbreaker to reveal my home 
made Willie D shirt that Rob Moran had made at Kinko's. And he was like, holy shit, man, you're for real. And he was just so excited. And it was the cover of the Going Out Like a Soldier Willie D solo record. And I think the fact that I brought nothing Ghetto Boys, I think he was just fucking excited. And then Isaac, who's holding a camera and a few feet away from us at this point, goes, yeah, show him the back of the shirt. And uh, Willie D goes, oh, what's on the back of the shirt? And I pulled the jacket down. It's the picture of him with the middle finger out. And he just, he looked like I'd thrown acid in his eyes. He just, oh, man. And he's just laughing. He's like, oh, that picture, that's so old. Oh, my God. That, oh, man. He just gives me a hug, gives, you know, puts his arm around me. Oh, man, let's get a picture together. And, and uh, he tells Isaac, Willie D tells Isaac, oh, hey, man, you give, the, give the camera to my friend. You know, he'll take a picture of all three of us. And Isaac goes, no, you don't understand. Dude. This is Mike's moment right now. And Willie D's like, oh, okay, whatever. And so deer in headlights, me meeting Willie D for the first time. And, uh, and we left there. I was happy as can be. And, you know, he thanked me. Like, I never said, oh, hey, by the way, I'm the guy that did that MySpace page back in the day. I was just too kind of weirded out to go, go into that stuff. But, uh, you know, the times the Ghetto Boys came out here and played after that, there was uh, one time in particular, uh, we had exchanged numbers and, and kept in touch you know, sort of semi-frequently. And there was a time when they played out here. I went and met with him and, and said hi and all this stuff. And But I didn't say, hey, dude, remember me? And he didn't, he was busy meeting a lot of people. I didn't make, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't bring it up or anything, but he texted me the next day and goes, was that you at the show last night? And I didn't oh, want to bother. The, like, I just, yeah. I'm me and I'm, I fucking, I'm an idiot. And he was just like, dude, why didn't, why didn't you say something? And I'm like, I didn't want to bother you, you know? And he was just like, dude, you're not a bother, dude. Trust me. Like, I love talking to you. And I was just like, just gushing. Like, what else do I need but a text from Willie D telling me I'm not a bother? So crazy. That's that's my Willie D ghetto boy story. But uh, yeah. they've had some some uh, some tragedy since uh, yeah. the records, and in the past couple of years with Bushwick passing away, and I think Scarface got COVID really bad. So I haven't heard too many updates on them musically, and and Willie D just posts lots of random stuff all the time, not much music related stuff. Yeah, I know it was too bad they were booked for Seattle, and I was gonna go. But, um, oh really? He died. Bushwick died before the before that tour. I think not very shortly before that tour. So too bad wow. I never got to see them. But definitely classic, classic <laughs> cult, uh, cult hip hop rap. Okay, Mike, let me know what's coming up in the future for you, the label of music, and whatever. What, what do you want to plug? What do I want to plug? Uh, the podcast is barrels of laughs at least for us hopefully it is for anybody listening also uh it's called here till it ends it's on all the podcast places um the free will record is getting wrapped up this weekend um really excited to get uh that music out it's going to be called all this time uh hopefully end of the year give or take a month or two depending on pressing plants and how backed up everything is um new age records we're busy doing a lot of new stuff uh most of it i mentioned and uh, new age records.com it's still alive and kicking and uh that might be it i think that's it and uh i've got a interview coming up at some point on vice tv's dark side of the ring awesome okay mike i want to thank you for your time we're nearing yeah, just over two and a half hours that is awesome and <laughs> how about uh we're gonna i'm gonna ask you to pick three songs from your own discography to end out the podcast oh okay um I am going to say uh, Dear Furious, 
the song R Complex. It's the letter R and a slash and the word complex. It's on the streaming stuff. That's literally one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, there is a song by A18 called Jailhouse Rob, which is uh, one of my favorites. Um, sure. And also the new Free Will record has a song called, which is my favorite. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say the title track all this time is my favorite song. Okay, uh, Those would be the three that pop out in my brain the most right now as like kind of hopefully defining my efforts in music. Okay. Thank you so much for your time, Mike. It was awesome catching up with you again. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it too. And it's great to see your face and hear you speaking words and finally getting to do at least something like this with you is great. For sure. I'm really stoked. Thanks again, Mike. Thank Thank you, you, buddy. Thank you. I'm sure there's a lot of you wondering, hey, what happened to that wrestling content you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast with Mike and XPW? Well, we realized that not everybody is a wrestling fanatic, so we've decided to put that on after the songs that Mike had chosen, and you can decide for yourself if you want to listen. I strongly suggest listening to it. There's some amazing, amazing stories in there from Mike and his days at XPW. So check it out or don't. The choice is up to you.
unselfish and selfish times for taking the young guys and showing them a better way. Tonight we have a chance to say, yeah, you're right. We're too extreme. We're too wild. We're too out of control. We're too full of our own shit. Or we have a chance to say, hey, fuck you, you're wrong. Fuck you, we're right. Because you have all made it to the dance. Because believe me, this is the dance.
get turned on to pro wrestling and what was life like as a kid in southern california around that obviously just like music wrestling was obviously pretty big down there too i would imagine growing oh up. yeah yeah um i mean just as a kid being you know I, I i don't even remember what age i got interested in wrestling but um that was another thing my my older brother was very into it we i started watching it and my parents weren't against it, which was thankful that I didn't have to like, you know, like stay up late at night and turn on a TV when no one's around and, and try to watch some wrestling. But I just thought wrestling was fascinating. Like I was really very enamored with, uh, you know, uh, Roddy Piper, uh, Bobby Heenan, um, you know, Dusty Rhodes. I, I was very, I was mostly into heels as far like I just thought they were so creative and I thought like the way they would you know go behind the referees back and I just thought there was such I just thought it was so interesting I never cared about Hulk Hogan I never cared about you know a, a lot of those guys that I just thought were like oh okay here's Hogan and blah 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 and I just thought they they didn't I mean obviously they were needed and yeah. obviously they made tons of money and, and obviously they weren't booking for me, because at the time I would have wanted Roddy Piper to win everything. Right. Um, but I, I just thought that was, it was just so creative and so interesting. Um, and we, I went to a couple sports arena shows. Uh, I would guess probably junior high. That was probably 84 ish. Um, and 
I, I didn't even understand that wrestling was happening at the Olympic. Like I had just been going there when I would see flyers for shows. I didn't realize that I was walking into a, walking into a building that had done so much uh, wrestling in the fifties and sixties and seventies. Yeah, yeah. um, but uh, you know, I always followed wrestling when, when it got really big and got into the WrestleManias and stuff, I, I lost interest cause it was just kind of getting too big and, and kind of corny and, you know, the rock and wrestling thing and the cartoons and the ice cream sandwiches and like <laughs> yeah. all of that stuff. I just kind of like, you know, I would, I would still search out for things I, I could find interest in, like if, you know, watching the TV and stuff. Um, but then, uh, kind of like skateboarding, it kind of had like a second, second life for me. Um, when I was living on my own and had moved to the Valley of Southern California, um, flipping, flipping through the TV, I, I came across, there was a local channel that had, uh, WWF ECW. And then after that was a show that came, came on called XPW and I just remember going, holy shit, like this is even grittier than ECW. Like this is, you know, like this is really wild. And then watching it, I'm like, they're at the Olympic Auditorium. Like, you know, and yeah. and just realizing like, dude, this is down the street from my house. Like I could, you know, they're mentioning their box office. Like that's the next town over. Like that's in the Valley. And uh, I just remember being just watching it as a fan on TV and uh, and I got tickets to well, I, I, they were actually running out of a high school in the valley, but they announced their first Olympic show. And I'm like, oh, my God, the Olympic Auditorium. I haven't been there since you know the 80s. Yeah. And uh, I was just so excited. I went to the office. I bought tickets. I was just tickets in hand. I don't even God, I can't even think of who I went with, but it was like wrestling for me was often very one-sided like, Oh, it's me. And I'm going to go watch wrestling. I didn't always have people to go with me. And, uh, I just remember going to the show going, I'm in the Olympic, there's wrestling going on. It's crazy. This is wild. I absolutely love it. And, um, after that, I saw that they had an AOL address mm-hmm. and, I'm like, AOL, well, I've got AOL and I'll put them in my buddies list. And if uh, anyone from the office signs on, I, I could probably just talk to them, right? And so yeah. uh, I would see the AOL sign on late at night and I'm like, all right, well, gosh, how do, I, how do I get involved in this company? Like, how do I do something? Like, I've got to have some, some talent somewhere that might be appealing to these guys. And uh, I knew no one and I just... Uh, I just popped open instant messenger and I, I messaged <laughs> XPW one at AOL or whatever the, yeah. whatever the hell it was. And uh, I was like, Hey, how's it going? Or I said something and somebody responded and I was like, Oh shit. All right. Now I gotta, I gotta say some stuff. <laughs> and so I remember just kind of like, Oh, Hey, are you guys hiring for anything? I'm looking to, you know, start, you know, get involved however you need somebody. And they were like, ah, oh, check back. And, it was kind of like a, you know, kind of pushing me off, which didn't really push me off. It just kind of went, oh, hey, I just messaged somebody and I'm, I've got half a foot in the door. Yeah, like, yeah. Somebody's actually answering me. And, uh, you know, I, I just remember I continued to message and uh, I got a, hey, you know, 
what's your experience? And I said, well, I really don't have any. My experience is barely in the music business. And uh, I've worked in high school. I worked on like the stage building classes. And I'm like, hey, I've got, you know, some some experience building stages and and doing lighting and doing like, you know, you know, minor special effects or whatever. And, uh, and uh, I've worked in, you know, some low budget movies and I got the, well, you know, give me a call Monday and my name is Kevin. And so I was like, all right, it's Kevin. I think he's on the TV show. Like, I think I saw him mentioned or something. And yeah. then after that made a call and, and got my foot in the door and started working for the company. Wow. So you went pretty, you went pretty damn far into that, right? Weren't you the, sorry, what was your, what was your, your role there? Sorry, I'm, I'm brain fart. You went uh, to the general manager or? Well, I was a live event producer, okay. uh, which was uh, exactly what I wanted to do. I, I didn't think I'd have strong points in, in booking or in any writing of, of the show. Um, I thought if they needed me in that stuff, I could maybe adapt to it, but I really wanted to make the, TV show and the live events look as good as they could, you know, and, and one of the, one of the critiques I had of the first show I saw actually was the, it was a debut show of the Sandman when he came into XPW. Oh, okay. And so uh, like, I just remember looking at the way the entryway was set up and all the staging. And it was like, some things were crooked and it was like, uh, I remember like this curtain hanging sideways and I was just like, <laughs> Well, this needs to be straight. Like, I was just like, oh, this yeah. needs to be straight. This needs to be painted. You need a light over here. And I just had all my, you know, all, all the ideas I thought I had all the answers for. Right. Um, and so but by the time I was, uh, I had found my spot, so to say, uh, I was the live event producer for the company. And so, which was great for me because I got to do tons of backstage stuff at the Grand Olympic Auditorium, which is, one of my favorite venues, I got to go there on off days and go down and measure stuff or, yeah, you know, try to take pictures of different stuff. And so I, I kind of got the run of the place, which was just, you know, I, I could never, you know, that could never be taken away of just like walking around the Olympic and just looking at the bleachers and looking at the walls and just realizing everything that had gone on there. It was just, it was incredible to work there. Um, but you know, I, when we would do, we would shoot TV during the week and then the shows would broadcast on the weekend. Like I got to do, you know, it was one of those situations. Like if you were around and just pitched ideas, sometimes they would get used. And like one, one show, for instance, we did, um, a Thanksgiving show that was, we, we had at the Olympic and it was like, I think the attendance we had was like 700 people. Like it was terrible. And I just remember guys looking through the curtain going, oh, my God, look at the turnout so bad. And, and I think we had you know, had the feeling that a show at Thanksgiving would be great. Oh, there's going to be so many people in town. They're going to want to go see wrestling. And, and so it didn't work out that way. We, we didn't draw very well. And I don't know if it was promotion or the holiday, but yeah. um, the show was, was really bad. And oh, the attendance was really bad. The show itself was not. But I could see the guys get affected by it. They were like, oh, we're in the Olympic Auditorium and we drew 700 people. And so there was kind of an overall, you know, sad feeling. And so I remember specifically the next week, we're starting to put TV together. And I was, they were like, God, what do we do? What do we do? You know, we're coming off a really bad show. And, and luckily it was before the internet and before 
people could go online and go, oh, hey, they had a really bad show, is I said, hey, let's say that it was the biggest fucking show we ever had. Let's say we made so much money that we're building a new TV studio. And it was like, what? And I go, I'll build the new TV studio and let's shoot the wraparounds for the show. We'll put the guys out in the parking lot and we'll light them with headlights. And it was kind of like this, what? Like, no, no, no. Like, we can't go in the studio because it's getting rebuilt right now. And because the show made so much money, it was kind of like, do we, can we put this in people's heads that they really missed something? Like, yeah. oh shit, like, fuck, I blew that show off. Like, maybe we should have gone. And so it was my theory that we could create something out of nothing. Like, we could mm. take what was a terrible show and turn it into like, maybe people missed out on something and maybe we could make them feel, wow, I shouldn't miss any shows in the future. So that episode of TV had Chris Kloss going to the front door of the building with a handwritten note, meet me, meet me out back. And so he goes out there, Larry Rivera's out there, they're, they're talking, they're doing their shtick. And they were like, you know, we made so much money off that show that Rob Black is building a new studio. And, you know, we're building a new studio and we were right by Burbank airport. So the planes would fly, you know, pretty low. Yeah. And I just remember Larry improvising going, there's Rob Black in his private jet flying over <laughs> to make sure we're doing the show. And it was just like a lot of those things just worked. You didn't really plan them. They just worked and kind of all fell into place. And then, so the next week on TV, we'd built a new studio. And oh. so that's how we played that off. But but it was it was the kind of company if you stuck around late at night late at night long enough, um, you know it'd be like okay let's work on some TV stuff you know what's what ideas do we got what you know what event are we going into how do we work backwards let's tell some stories and and that was pretty much the way it would go down. Cool. So how how long were you there for? Right. I was the there uh, if I'm not mistaken a little over. Uh, God, it was 2000, I want to say it was 2001 into 2002. Um, I should know all the dates, but uh, yeah, it was just like a, it was an incredible time. Like it was just so wild. And it was, it was when the company had literally gone, there were three shows they had done at a, a high school gym in, I believe it was three shows in the Valley. And then graduating up to the Olympic, which, which the Olympic was kind of more than we needed, but it was sure it looked good on flyers and it looked good on TV. Um, but it was too big of a venue for us. We couldn't, we couldn't fill it halfway, you know, but yeah. I think, I think since ECW had come into town, ECW ran there once and filled it. Uh, it, we had to look like we were on that level as well. So right. uh, I know a lot of money came out of pocket that, you know, wasn't recouped in ticket sales just for us to have that appearance that we were at the Olympic yeah. and we ran, you know, I, I can't think of how many shows I would guess seven or eight, but we also ran at the Pico Rivera sports arena, which was a big outdoor venue. What led to the end of XPW? Um, I quit. XPW right before they had started doing the Philly ECW arena shows. XPW was great in a lot of ways because if you said, Hey, I want to do this, 
if it was green lighted, you kind of got free reign to really like, oh, hey, I said I'm going to do this. Well, shit, now I got to do it, you know? And so there was a lot of opportunity and there was a lot of, you know, if you proved you could pull some stuff off, you could, you know, say you wanted to do anything and, and generally you would get the ability to do it. Like there were multiple nights I spent the night there just to not have to drive home half an hour and then drive back the next day. Like I slept in the wrestling ring in the warehouse just because like, Oh, Hey, you know, I can work until three or four in the morning and just take a little cat nap and then wake up for work and be here at nine and not even need to drive anywhere and deal with traffic. Um, so, uh, so that was kind of me realizing this job could totally kill me if I let it because I just eat, sleep and work this, you know, and there was even a time when uh, coming back from an event at the Olympic, I was driving to our building in North Hollywood and I missed the off ramp and I drove like 10 miles cause I'd fallen asleep and I was just waking up, driving, falling asleep, driving. And just, I passed where I was supposed to be. I ended up in Woodland Hills, which is where I lived actually. So I had to get off the freeway, go back, keeping my eyes open and get all the way back. And, and it's just like, it was a job if you let it, you know, run you down, it did. And so, uh, I left the company shortly before the East coast shows, which I had no idea the East coast shows were even happening, or I probably would have stayed around. Yeah. Um, but I got out of there, I kept working some local smaller companies and uh, the East Coast shows happened for XPW. Um, from what I understand, they rubbed a lot of people the wrong way by leasing out the ECW arena right? and, and kicking out a lot of other companies that were running there and pissing off a lot of the local people, which I don't know why that was the game plan. I think it was just to pound your chest and be the boss, but um, it didn't seem smart for business. And it turned out not being smart for business because uh, the local guys, everyone who would work that building for whatever company, now they could work for XPW if they got a booking. But if not, there's no other promotions running in the building because we had the lease on it. And so literally they, they just eliminated all the competition there those companies were all pissed. So they would tell their guys not to work for XPW. And so it just created just a, a tremendous ripple effect, which uh, attendance dropped. And, you know, guys, we were flying all these guys out there, or not we, but they were flying guys out there and like the home guys. And then there were guys out there they were using. And, you know, it was, it was great to see, you know, guys that I worked with that it was a huge honor, I'm sure, to work in that building. But it was ill-fated to where you know, there, there, were, there were mistakes, I would say, made that really just drove the company into the ground. And then they had come back and worked a couple local shows at uh, what I believe to be an indoor, indoor paintball uh, course that oh, was wow. just a building used for paintball. Uh, they had set up the ring. They ran a couple shows. But XPW ran Philly. And they ran, uh, I want to say Pittsburgh. So they were doing some decent stuff out there. They were working with Shane Douglas and Terry Funk. And there was a lot of, there was so much potential, but I I think some of those mistakes or decisions made really just soured a lot of people. 
Um, but they came home, ran a few shows and, and it was just over. I see. Is there any, have you done anything, anything else at all with any indie and indie promotions or do you want, are you, is that something you're, you're still interested in or is that just in the well, past? Well, uh, the early two thousands, I worked with a couple uh, local companies, which was really cool because the demand and the weight I kind of put on myself was so much smaller. Like my responsibilities were smaller and it was, it was much more enjoyable well, do I want to say much more enjoyable? Uh, it was enjoyable because I guess it was just less responsibility and it was it was just a little bit of an easier workload. Um, but we ended up doing some XPW reunions. We did the Cold Day in Hell show, uh, which was, gosh, I should know, uh, which we did in Redondo Beach, XPW's Cold Day in Hell. And then we did um, a 10-year anniversary show and I think that's, yeah, we just did those two shows, which I ended up working for a home video company called Big Vision Entertainment, which had actually bought the rights to everything related to XPW. So strangely enough that years later, I go to work for a home video company that just happens to own XPW. But this is where those relationships came in. Uh, Kevin Kleinrock, who worked for uh, XPW and was an enormous part of the success of the company, ended up working for Big Vision Entertainment. And then he called me for a job because we had worked together. And then, uh, you know, uh, Chris Kloss ended up working there and a couple other guys. And it was kind of like, the team's kind of, you know, this the, the workforce for a lot of the office stuff was kind of back together. And uh, I was like, Kevin, you know, you Big Vision's got the rights to a lot of this stuff. Who, who owns the rights to the name? Oh, Big Vision does. Hey, would Big Vision want to put on, you know, this yeah. Cold Day in Hell show? And so uh, we were able to fund it with a real budget. And we got a building that we could afford. And it was kind of like a, oh, this show had a budget. Everybody got paid. It made money. It was a success. Great. Like, maybe this thing could come back in a way. And, you know, it was, it was a long process, uh, but it led to the anniversary show, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, Kevin and I actually wrote a business proposal and a plan to bring the company back at a full-time status, which was great because we had home video distribution through Big Vision. Yeah. We had all the editing stuff. Most of the guys still lived in Southern California. We could still do what we did with fly-in guys, uh, you know, previously. The guys, the two guys that owned the name, there was a guy from Big Vision and there was another guy from a different company that both were the two guys that had purchased XPW. And the other guy that was outside of Big Vision didn't have any wrestling experience or a mind for it. And I think he thought he was sitting on a gold mine. Like this XPW thing was just going to, you know, he wanted big money and, you know, was really thinking he was onto something. And we're like, hey, we want to run this as a, as a real company. You know, if we can budget it out, is this something you would back? And, oh, yeah, totally, totally. And just nothing ever materialized after promise after promise. And it just, it just faded away. And then so after that, I was just like, well, I, I still feel like being creative, I still like, you know, facilitating a platform for, you know, these guys to work and perform and do what they do. And I, I was just such a huge fan of so much of it. Uh, and I love the guys. And um, 
I love this area. I love the fans. So I started a company called MexPW, which was a mixture of Mexican pro wrestling and Lucha Libre. And, and it was a, a very much a hybrid company, but solely based on XPW. Like it was really yeah, taking yeah. Uh, everything but the name, but kind of including the name and running with it. And because through the XPW Cold Day in Hell and the reunion uh, that we had in Los Angeles, I had hookups now with buildings and with security and with rental places that I, I through the years facilitated and nurtured. And uh, so once I had a building, I was kind of like, well, you know, I'll get a ring for the weekend and I'll call the guys and we'll just start doing shows. And so uh, we did our first show. It was fantastic. Uh, the building was happy. Guys were happy. Everything was good. And then uh, the second show, I got served with a cease and desist from the guy that owned XPW oh, because MexPW was too close to his trademark. And I looked up online and I searched his trademark and it was those three letters in a row were trademarked. Right. It was, it was, it it was XP and W with anything before anything after. And the way it had been worded in the trademark was us. Like that's what we were, we were totally breaching his, his trademark. And so when we would do the logo, we would do Emmy and then a big X and then the little PW. So it's like, no, 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 it's, it's Mexican pro wrestling. It's not Emmy XPW. And it was like, no, no, no. And so it just became like a back and forth. And uh, he lawyered up and he wanted to fight. <laughs> and, uh, and my friend Kevin Kleinrock had had experience with his attorney and was like, that dude's the real deal. Like that guy will chew you up and spit you out. I know for a fact. And I was like, oh, come on, like, you know, we can, I'm used to just bullshitting my way out of a lot of stuff. And um, I had spoken to a trademark attorney in Orange County and he said, uh, well, how much does this mean to you? And I said, well, it means a lot. You know, I've been building up the company for, you know, however many months now. And he was like, well, I'm $500 an hour, uh, but I think you got a case. (laughs) And I was like, you're $500. We're drawing... 400 people. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, the easy math real quick was like, uh, yeah, that's not going to work. And, and one of the local wrestlers who we had been working with, uh, fantastic guy, he had become an attorney over the years of wrestling. And he was like, ah, fuck that guy. Let's, let's just go for it. Let's just keep going. Like, screw this guy. Nice. And I was like, all right. He goes, yeah, dude, I'll defend you for free. Nope, I don't care. Like, let's just fight. Wow. And I was like, oh, fuck you. Okay, yeah, maybe we'll fight. And he goes, yeah, and if it doesn't work out, I'll do your, I'll do your bankruptcy for you. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, bankruptcy? Bank- like, bankruptcy? What? Like, whoa. Like, and, you know, uh, I like to bullshit if I need to, uh, to save certain situations and to keep things moving along. But I was like, I don't think I'm ready for bankruptcy. And this guy's this guy that owns XPW has become a thorn in my side. And so, uh, so, Oh, and he was threatening, like, I'm going to get to a judge. We're going to get an injunction. We're going to shut the show down. 
And uh, I needed to really focus on the show. So I'm like, oh, we'll, we'll change the name of it. Go fuck yourself. So uh, we became Mex Pro. And I didn't hear from him again. And we ran, you know, three or four or five more shows. And we had some, we had some really good guys working. And besides the local guys, we'd flown in a couple of guys like, uh, you know, Necro Butcher and Luke Hawks and just some really good guys that were, you know, fantastic to work with. It did, did really good work for us. And um, we had been using this warehouse in LA that was like four or 500 bucks for the building. And so it was completely affordable. And uh, they had gotten word that they were losing their lease. And it was like, oh, you're losing your lease. I'm exhausted. <laughs> uh, maybe that's, that's the sign to, to hang things up. And so I had actually started working on the next show and I found an indoor inline hockey place uh, in Huntington Beach. And I was like, oh, let's, let's do this one last show. And maybe this will be like the going away show. So I booked Tommy Dreamer and I sent Dreamer a deposit. And I'm like, well, I'm going to have him fight our guy. He's going to fight the Messiah. And because they're, it's just a main event waiting to happen in Southern California. Yeah. And so I send Dreamer a deposit. He's like, hey, I'm in. Let's, let's go. We're good to go. We'll start doing promos and stuff. And I'm trying to think of what happened with the building. It was some, I think we were trying to configure the locker room to the ring and where we were going to do seating. And there was like a little glitch. And I just went cross-eyed and I'm like, I'm out of gas. <laughs> like I'm just yeah. completely out of gas. And it was really like, besides my wife doing a bunch of heavy lifting and some of the local guys, like it was my, just like with XPW, it was just a full-time thing and we weren't making money, but it was the thing taking all of my time. So the things that I needed to do that did make money weren't getting done. So uh, I just remember just going, Oh, like the minute, I called it off like, okay, the show's canceled dreamer. Keep the deposit, you know, thanks. And just let all the guys know. And I just felt the weight of the world off my shoulders. Mm -hmm. I was like, just, I'll, I just never wanted to be, I never wanted to own a company, but the things I thought I could contribute, I couldn't contribute anywhere else. Yeah. So it's like, I have to create a company so that I could, make the ring look good or make the entryway look good or whatever, you know, like, so in my warehouse, I had like, you know, 60 pieces of barricade and like this entire entryway and banners and just, just staging and all this different shit and uh, ring aprons and canvases and right. everything you can think of. And it just was like, you know, and since then the building we were using has been bulldozed. <laughs> you know, it's just right. like, there's so many things that are now just, Oh, that's where we did that. Yeah. It's gone. And, you know, and the Olympic auditorium is still there, but it's a church now. It's, it's not doing any, any events, any good events. Um, so that was pretty much it after that, you know, I just, uh, I supported my friends when they were doing local stuff. I'd go out to some shows and just hang out and have a good time. Um, but I, I have felt the interest because I really like shooting promos and I like presenting what we were doing in the most positive, creative light I could. And like, that's that part I still miss. 
I don't know if you happen to know or ever came across Happy Crater. He was the bass player in By a Thread, Gob. Mm-mm, what no. else? He was in. He was in the original original Burden Burden lineup. He became a wrestler. There's one point where we were. Did you know John Orton? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, John. Okay, John's from Seattle. We yeah. we, we met each other. Became wrestling straight edge. We were best friends. Right, you know? right. We all were gonna be. We're all gonna join the one of the promotions that was doing a was doing a school in Vancouver. And mm-hmm. John never ended up doing it, but Happy did it. And he became, as far as I know, definitely easily one of the first 90, 96 ish, the first straight edge wrestler, Strife. Wow. It was X Stop. And I like, I mean, it was, it was cool. He just got bored with it. He did, he did some good things for the local promotion. It was Extreme Championship Wrestling, ECCW mm-hmm. at the time or whatever. But I didn't at the time. Burden was, was, you know, we were touring as much as we could. I didn't want to do it, which is a good thing. I always wanted to be a wrestler. I guess I've been into it since I was a little kid, right? But I just couldn't do it. I couldn't afford the training or whatever, which was good because, I mean, early 2000s, I got, uh, I've got severe arthritis. So uh, that would have put an end to that, even though I would have liked to have done something else. But like that's, yeah. uh, you know, I chose the band thing over whatever. Still a huge fan. But yeah, he was um, he was, the, as far as I know, one of the first straight edge wrestlers for sure. Wow. And so, yeah, so I learned I went to shows, but um, I was just wondering if you heard of him and like John wrestled at a Southern promotion. I can't remember. John Orton did. Yeah. John was a wrestler for, for a few years. The dude that was in Beyond the Mat, the promoter. With the glasses that did the wrestling, he passed away. Roland Alexander. Yeah, he had wrestled for him. Oh, really? So, yeah. So next time you see John, ask him. Tell him I said. Oh shit! Like- yeah, I was trying to think of the name of Roland's place. Uh, APW. It was APW, right? I can't remember. It's been years since I watched that. All but it was they showed it right. It was on the. It was on the. Yeah, it's on Beyond the Mat. The mat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he works with um, Mike. Uh, shit. The two guys he takes to WWE for a for a uh, yeah a dark match um, yeah it's what's his name I'm Facebook friends with the guy Mike <laughs> uh, Mike Modest it's Mike Modest that's it that's and, it and then there's a taller guy uh, shit what's that guy's name yeah you got me. I can't I, think I of can't it remember. but. But yeah, they, okay. they show some stuff from within that warehouse, which was their training facility, which they right. have house shows at. Um, but then they, I think they'd bring in like one headliner guy like to, to work their shows. Yeah. But, but so you're saying John, John, John was a wrestler. Yeah. He had, wow. he had moved to move from Washington to California and did, I don't remember talk like, wasn't, I don't think he did it for very long, maybe two or three years. Mm. And then just, but he did wrestle. There's some, he was on Raw as an extra. Really? As like a security guard. You know, they do, he was oh, on that. Rad. He was on that in a pretty, um, I remember seeing a couple of times. I think he did that. But um, yeah, so like I said, it was wrestling and we clicked. As soon as I, I met him, he came to a show at my, I also had shows at, uh, at my place, at my in my garage and stuff. And as soon as we met, it was like, dude are you like my brother or something like told totally straight edge and like but yeah but um yeah he's a, he's a good dude so yeah like um anyways what i was getting at is i also have a friend named kenny lush i don't know if oh, yeah. he plays guitar in dagger mouth okay yeah. You know, yeah yeah um so i was thinking about we doing um down the line doing a punk rock and wrestling episode if we can get oh, right. you guys to do that and then maybe i don't know who's the dude from the east coast guitar player he's playing full of hell or no I can't remember uh, his name. Kenny's friends with them. I'm not full of him. 
I can't remember. He's a guitar player in a bat, pretty well known touring band. It, is it not every time I die? Not every time oh, okay. I die. A different, That's what I was saying, smaller, smaller band. But if you if you're into that, Mike, I'll put some oh, for other. sure. So, what was the craziest things you got to see in your XPW stint, like in the ring or and or backstage? Like, what was the craziest thing you saw? Um, probably New Jack jumping off balconies. Even though I knew it was coming, it was still something to see because. The balcony at the Olympic Auditorium is no joke. Like that's a that's a that's a height right there. But working with him, he would walk into a place and go, "What can I jump off of?" You know, and like that was like his first concern. He was just, you know, or at least the first concern I was aware of. But um, but like I mean, there was the something that happened when we did the Cold Day in Hell reunion show. Um, we had booked the. I found this city gymnasium that it was owned by the city. It was on city property and it was a huge former high school gym. The high school had been gone, but it was part of a park. Now um, one of our referees, a guy named Eric Malikian was, was from Redondo beach. And he's like, Hey, you got to check out this gymnasium. And so uh, we went to the gymnasium, like this is huge and it's perfect, but it's really nice. Like beautiful hardwood floors, like basketball court style. And, um, and so we, you know, I said, hey, we're going to have some cameras. We're going to do this and that. And I think they were thinking like, oh, this is going to be just some, you know, your wrestling thing. Great. And I'm like, hey, we're going to need to pull out these bleachers. We're going to like, we're going to do some shit. And I, I don't think they really grasped it. And um, we signed a contract for the building, paid for it. And uh, I was just down there constantly measuring and going through different stuff and figuring out locker room's going to be here and we're going to line up people out here and we're going to bring the barricade and park the truck, blah, 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 blah. So during the show, we roll the ring in or before the show, we roll the ring in. We're doing all this different stuff. And like, we've just got cameras and production lights and just we're running a generator outside and we're just doing all this shit. And the guy who had gone over the rental agreement with me and had been my liaison to get in the building just came in and just looked around and I could just tell he had no idea we were bringing in this kind of operation, which, right. you know, was, was, we were really going all out and, and we had built this huge entryway that just had, you know, banners and signage and all the shit. And they were just like, uh, okay. You know, like what's going on. I mean, it was the middle of the show when he showed up and, and so we had rolled out all this tarping covering the the floor and when it was gone, there was just blood everywhere. Like there was just blood on the bleachers, blood under the bleachers, just blood on the tarping we had rolled out. There was blood in the, <laughs> blood in the locker room. There was blood in the bathrooms. There was broken glass and piles of blood just everywhere. And we just worked around the clock, cleaning, rearranging, getting things back where they needed to be. And, uh, I just remember leaving the building at like noon the next day. I'd been there over 24 hours and just walking like my legs were just shot and go like I had, I had got a hotel room and I never even made it into the hotel room that was nearby. Like I just, I worked past the checkout of the hotel and uh, I just ended up going home and I slept for a day and I just checked in with the building guy because I wanted to keep a good relationship. I was like, hey, man, you know, I know we were in there a little late into the next day. Uh, you know, 
how was, you know, hope, hope everything was good. And he was like, uh, yeah, the, uh, the building's no longer available for any future stuff. And I was like, well, at least we pulled one off. Oh, but you tried. Yeah. As far as crazy shit, like there would be, there was a time when, um, when before the free fall show, uh, new Jack and, um, Vic Grimes had wrestled at the Olympic and I had set up this huge projector that was like projecting like intro images and stuff out onto a screen. And they went backstage to get access to the balcony because they were going to go up and fight in the balcony. And when they went through the curtain, they tripped over the entire projection system and all this equipment just came crashing down and they just walked right on by it and went up the stairs, went to the balcony and fought and the shit was destroyed. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think the free fall show was like the biggest, craziest um, thing to experience, you know, the entire scaffolding event and, and everything that transpired there was, was really probably the most, the craziest thing, but also the most, it was my biggest opportunity to prove myself Yet it was also the biggest event where anything could have gone wrong at any time, and we would have been, you know, in a in a strange strange situation with trying to, yeah. you know, pull off the the show as as it happened. A few months ago, you were telling me that you were interviewed for Dark Side of the Ring about that particular match, correct? Yeah, yeah, they had already done uh, quite a bit of stuff on that feud and especially new Jack and, you know, showing the, the free fall itself, the, the main event was new Jack versus Vic Grimes and, and what had happened with uh, new Jack throwing Vic Grimes off the scaffolding. So that was the, that was the biggest show that I had worked. I think it it was the biggest show XPW ever had as far as attendance and, and legacy. And as, as much as I know, um, but, uh, yeah, everything leading up to that show was, was an incredible workload. And, um, I had heard that, uh, dark side of the ring was going to be featuring, uh, XPW as one of their upcoming, I think it's scheduled for the fall of this year to air maybe into, uh, the winter. I'm not sure, but whenever that season gets ready. Um, so I sent a, I, I sent a, an email to one of the producers along with the schematic that I had drawn up for the scaffolding and said, Oh, Hey, you know, if you ever, if you guys ever want to talk about anything, I've you know got some insight you might uh, find interesting. And he called me immediately and said, Hey, let's, let's get you on the show. And I did like a two or three hour pre-interview and they were just like, tell me stuff. What do you know? What happened? How was it? there and uh oh okay yeah so so they just wanted to know you know they were just basically doing you know acting like they don't know anything and just like give us stuff what do you know what did you experience and the thing was is is they wanted to know a lot about the extreme associate side of the company and for anybody that doesn't know xpw the wrestling company was owned by an adult video company called extreme associates so when we would go into a building like the Olympic Auditorium that was $10,000 to rent it for a day, we weren't generating $10,000 in ticket sales or in merch sales. So right. that money was being 
that money was coming over from the adult side. So, um, so, uh, you know, the vice guys were super cool and, and the dark side of the ring guys, whatever you want to call them. But they were just like, Hey, tell us stories about this and that. And they knew about all the free fall stuff, obviously, cause it had been covered, uh, in previous episodes. And so I was just able to lend a lot of the insight to that since, uh, it was put on me to actually have the scaffolding built. So, um, the free fall event for anybody who hasn't seen it, um, the main event is, uh, New Jack versus Vic Grimes in what was billed as a 40 foot scaffolding match, which the scaffolding was positioned over the wrestling ring, uh, basically had a ladder on both sides and a walkway that went across the top. Um, the object of the match, whoever wins is the guy who remains standing at the top of the scaffolding. And the other guy uh, is thrown into the wrestling ring, which we had, I want to say 12, eight foot tables in the ring to work as a crash pad for whoever the, the loser may be that would be falling into the ring. So, uh, you know, I think we, I had about a week and a half's notice that I was going to be in charge of, uh, the scaffolding, the tables, everything that was needed for the match to happen. Um, so, uh, I drew up a schematic of what we were looking for and sent it to three different scaffolding companies. And they were like, what are you trying to do? And I said, oh, we're going to have the scaffolding over the ring and we're going to have three cameramen up there just getting these angles of the match. Yeah. And they were like, building a scaffolding just for cameramen? Okay, like whatever. And so uh, basically my, 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 I was, my sole purpose was to build a scaffolding that we were telling everybody involved, including a fire marshal and the Olympic auditorium staff uh, and managers and anybody that I insurance company, whoever, anybody that was part of this uh, string uh, that I needed to speak to was being told that we were going to have cameramen up there. It came down to, I contacted, I, I, we signed a deal with a company that was going to come out and build it. Um, the show was Saturday uh, I met with them eight or nine Saturday morning. They came in with all their scaffolding, built this uh, <laughs> built this enormous scaffolding that was over the ring. Uh, I don't remember the size of each section they built it in, but it was built in sections that were you know predetermined seven feet, nine feet. I don't remember, uh, but including the top and whatever the the measurements were. Um, we actually had to raise the lighting truss because there was a, a you know, like a four-sided lighting truss that would be over a boxing ring or wrestling ring. Right. We had to raise that to the ceiling of the Olympic auditorium because the scaffolding kept bumping into it. And we just kept raising the lights and kept building the scaffolding and building the scaffolding. And so uh, we got the scaffolding to 27 feet and it was already above the uh, balcony and they were like, okay, we're going to put the next section on. And that gets us, you know, I know you're aiming for 40 feet, but, but look at this thing. And it looked so tall. Like it was just so tall. And I remember just thinking like, wow, we're, we need to stop it here. Like if we go to yeah. 40 feet, everyone's, you know, I mean, cause 
if you look at it, it looks massive and that's 27 feet. And I just remember going, we're going to take this up to 40 feet. And I called Kevin and I said, Hey dude, I'm here at the building. Uh, we've got the scaffolding and we're at 27 feet and it's so high. Like this thing is so tall and he goes, Oh great. And I'm just like, Hey, it's like really up there. Um, I I'm thinking we should stop it at 27 feet. And he said, well, how does it look? And I said, it looks scary. And he goes, perfect. 27 feet. So I went it back inside the building and I went, just build the, build the plank, go it across, you know, build, build the platform. So we capped it at 27 feet, built the platform. They put all the security railings and all the stuff. So the cameraman wouldn't fall off. Uh, the, fire marshal showed up and he said, Hey, what do you got going on here? And I'm like, Oh, it's, you know, we're having this wrestling. Oh, wrestling. Oh man. I remember when the WWF was at, uh, you know, the sports arena and, and, you know, he's was an immediate wrestling fan. He'd done all these different things before. So I'm like, okay, just, I just need this permit signed off. And, uh, I just need the Olympic to be satisfied. And I just need the doors to open. I just need this event to happen. And I need, for everyone to be okay and, and load up and go home. And so he said, Hey, have a great show and signed off on the permit. And I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. And I went to the Olympic auditorium office and I set it down on my guy's desk and I'm like, there it is. And he goes, I don't know how you did it. Have a great show. And then I went back down into the arena and I saw my scaffolding guy. And I said, see you Monday. And so he's like, all right. So they packed up their stuff and left. And the minute we rolled down the doors and had the building secure again, we just started pulling all the security stuff off the, off the scaffolding, which was like these railings and stuff that were uh, at the top of it to keep the cameraman from falling. But we needed access so that someone could fall. And that was one of the craziest matches in all that was matches of all of all time yeah yeah and it was it was kind of weird because leading up to the event it was just like yeah 40 for scaffolding printed the flyers we're talking about it on tv guys are booked this thing's happening 40 foot scaffolding 40 foot scaffolding promo promo and i was like nobody's talking about how to build this thing you know like i'm in all these meetings and like nobody's talking about okay hey uh somebody going to call around. And so I went to Kevin, I think it was a week and a half before. And I'm like, dude, if this is going to fall on me, can it fall on me today? Like not in three or four days. And he was like, all right, it's yours. Get a fucking scaffolding. And I was like, fuck, okay. And just, you know, <laughs> try trying to watch like old VHS scaffolding matches going like, okay, what does this one look like? What is ours going to look like? How do I, you know, make yeah. this look as legitimate as possible? Like we're, we really built this, you know, enormous scaffolding that's going to, you know, continue or end one of the, this, you know, one of the biggest feuds in wrestling. Right. Especially at the time, it's got to look like this can't look like some chicken shit thing. It's really got to look like, you know, and I, I think, it, I think it, it worked. Absolutely. And what, what, how were you feeling watching that match unfold? And especially the, it's the, ed, were you worried at all? Oh, just scared shitless. Yeah. Talking about it now, I'm feeling like a tightness in my chest. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, we, we cut some corners that were just, uh, 
that were just not smart. Like uh, we, and I'll say I, um, had been in charge as the live event producer. I was in charge of, you know, the discussions with the venue and ticketing and and a lot of arrangements in that way, as well as being um, responsible for providing insurance. So we needed we needed a waiver of a million dollar blanket policy to be to to be inside the Olympic. That's what they required. Okay, and so we had a way of phonying up our insurance document. We had a previous uh, policy waiver certificate um, from the previous shows that they had done. And I would put liquid paper over the dates, change the address of who was being covered. And I was faking these insurance documents. So, I would just do them and then send them like I had no ins- experience in the insurance business. So if I made a mistake on some kind of fine print that was getting changed, anybody who knows these things would have looked and went the issue dates wrong or like, you know, however this is prepared is who the fuck is doing this. This isn't legit, but I did them for every Olympic show and we ran there with zero insurance. So not only did I have that weighing on my shoulders as far as like, this is the biggest event. There's a fucking 27 foot scaffolding that's, you know, 30 feet across. And it's this fucking tower that could tip over and, you know, fucking break through a wall in the building or something. But the good thing was, is if any of the guys had been injured, of course, they would have, you know, the company would have taken care of them and stuff. So I wasn't thinking in a way like, oh, this puts guys in in harm's way. It was like, oh, we're getting by from the building because, you know, we've never had accidents. We're pretty smart. We kind of know how to do this stuff, which was just, if it had been my company and and when I ran my shows, we had insurance or the the building had insurance, but XPW was just a thing that kind of flew by the seat of its pants. So we did not run with insurance um, covering the building because we were, the insurance was covering the Olympic auditorium for many damages. So uh, not only was it building the scaffolding and lying to the fire marshal and lying to the Olympic auditorium and phoning up the insurance documents, but it was also, oh, the show actually needs to happen and everyone needs to survive this fucking monstrosity we just built. So the whole night was, was stressful because it's just like, in two hours, like waiting two hours to find out if, you know, if, if everyone's okay. And I just remember match after match and everything's going fine and we're doing, you know, everything's going good. And the crowd was hot. Like it was just, everyone's just this huge thing sitting in the middle of the building. And like every match was good. Every, like the crowd was super good. And then the minute that match started and guys got announced and you know that match started in the ring like everyone's just standing like it was just everyone knew it was coming and it was just you know such an exciting match so the match is going on they finally decide to go up onto the scaffolding as you can see um they go up they're on either side they meet in the middle they start fighting up on the scaffolding and the scaffolding's rocking back and forth like it's moving you know and it, it didn't seem like it was going to tip over, but it was definitely moving. I mean, two grown men yeah. 
full-sized guys up there. I mean, it, this thing's going to, I think it was made out of aluminum, and but it was moving around. And um, at one point, I remember hearing what I thought was an electrical short. And I thought that they'd bumped into that lighting truss because they were up there. And that was the only thing electrical I knew about. Yeah. And so I was hearing the sparks of elect, and I just heard the crowd, just everyone gasped at the same time. So I was directly next. I was by one of the ring posts under the scaffolding and I walked out to the side and I looked up and new Jack had a stun gun. <sighs> and so he was stun gunning Vic Grimes. So the electrical stuff I heard, which yeah. I thought was the, the yeah. building, the light shorting out was just a stun gun. So he's stun gunning Vic Grimes. So people are, Oh my God, this crowd's going, blah, 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 blah. And so they're up there fighting. This thing's rocking back and forth. I'm having a heart attack with every heartbeat. And I look up and I see Jack just grab onto the back of Vic Grimes and just tossed him what appeared to be towards the tables that had been set up for him to crash into. And he completely overshoots the tables out of the 12 tables. I believe he clipped two or three of them and was just from the top of the scaffolding did a simple somersault and the back of his legs, well, his butt hit and broke some of the corners off some of the tables, but his, the back of his thighs actually hit the ring rope, which saved him and sprung him back into the ring. And if this thing had been 40 feet tall, if he had taken one more step up on the scaffolding and been one more, two more feet over, the ring ropes would have hit him probably in his back and he would have slid out onto the concrete. Like it was yeah. that close to something really bad. I mean, I don't know how much the ring ropes would have slowed him down being a big guy like that falling from the yeah. height. And literally those, those tables were meant to cr like he was, hopefully going to be falling straight down into these tables and breaking a bunch right. of them and them falling into pieces all over the ring, which would have been a great visual. But the scary visual, which we did get was him doing this somersault and almost landing outside the ring. And he and I made contact eye contact while he was falling. And wow. I didn't know him prior, but we shared a moment right then where I was just like, this is, the culmination of these weeks leading up to this and all this stress and all these responsibilities and all of these things we had done promoting this thing, seeing this guy and just watching him fall back into the ring was the most relief I've ever felt in my life. And protocol was to be the minute he lands, we had an, we had an ambulance already there. So uh, he was to be tended to immediately, no matter what's happening. Right. And uh, so the announcer said, please, everybody, let's get out of the building. The side doors open on the Olympic. There's an ambulance out there. There's just lights. And it was a perfect visual for a fan who had just seen something this incredible happen to just be told the building you're seeing the ambulance, you're seeing paramedics, you're seeing all this different stuff. So we were able to turn it in a, you know, an interesting uh, following weeks on TV. But um, I was there as the, the paramedics ran right by me to him, checked him out, 
Kevin came out of the backstage, checked him out. Um, and Vic Grimes' mom was actually backstage. Oh, and man. she was losing her mind because she needed to hear he was okay, which he suffered a twisted ankle when he hit those ring ropes. So when he sprung back in the ring, he landed with a twisted ankle. That was the extent of his injuries. Wow, that's inc- that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and um, there's there's like one scene uh, when before they go up the scaffolding, you can see me like right next to the entryway wearing an A18 sweatshirt and like the nice. camera just pans by me. And like, that's as much as I am on any of the footage, but, but yeah, but to continue with the dark side of the ring, they, they wanted all that stuff as well as like, Oh, Hey, what crazy stuff happened uh, around the office, you know, a porno company, a, you know, wrestling company, like what was, you know, what was the day to day and what was the, you know, wacky stuff you saw. And so we went into a lot of that stuff. They, once I did go for the interview that lasted two and a half hours. And I was kind of like, you know, they had told me some of the guys they saw during the day and I'm like, Oh, this is going to be good. You know, I could, you know, like the Messiah and chaos and some, some of the other people that showed up for interviews. And I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. You don't need me for two and a half hours to <laughs> talk about a scaffolding, but I'm happy to do it. And one of the stories that uh, I'd forgotten in the pre-interview and I actually emailed them after the fact about was uh, the night before free fall, uh, we had done a pre-party at the Viper room in LA of all places. And so wrestlers came down, the fans were there. It was like a really, really cool thing. And everyone's just hanging around and stuff. And we had, we had an accountant at, XPW, the one accountant who was just an incredible piece of shit. Like just the most, the worst person I've ever had to work with and um, just made, made work miserable. Only guy I didn't like at work. And, um, and so he uh, thought he would go up to new Jack and try to be his buddy at this pre-party. And so he had been from New York he thought he could yo, yo, yo his way and like put his arm around guys and drop the N word and say, like, act like we're cool. New Jack, New Jack just looked at him and was like, Hey dude, we're not friends. Like you can't talk to me like that. And the fact that this guy had even gotten a warning from new Jack was like mind blowing. Like, how'd you get a warning? Like what's, what's going on? And, this guy was like, no, no, man, it's cool. It's cool. We're bros. We're, we're good, man. We're good. And just dropped the N word a few more times. And new Jack took a full beer glass, like one of those thick beer glasses and just fucking smashed the guy right in the face and just cut him from his eye to the side of his mouth, broke his nose, blackened both of his eyes and just fucking lights out. The dude just hit the ground and it couldn't happen to a better guy. I was I was delighted when that happened. And but this is New Jack, the guy we're going to have in the main event tomorrow. We better get him out of here. And so um, Kevin and some of the guys just rushed him off out of there. And a guy who deserved to get his face smashed got his face smashed. It was great. Amazing. And I guess maybe we should have went into that before. I'll edit this in, Mike. Do you want to just give a brief, a brief rundown on New Jack and what he's just the freaking crazy maniac that he is? Oh, absolutely. So uh, New Jack 
was working for the company prior to me getting there. He had worked a couple shows. So I knew when I started there, New Jack was already there. And New Jack is a guy who had gotten, uh, you know, had worked Smoky Mountain, had worked uh, ECW prior to us and, and had just done incredible, incredible stuff at ECW, including getting himself into lawsuits and, and bleeding and crashing and stabbing and, and doing a lot of insane stuff, uh, being a wrestler and, and outside of being a wrestler. Um, if anyone is interested, if you Google new Jack ECW, uh, you'll see some fantastic stuff. Uh, and also too, we had been told, and I'm, I'm guessing this is, is true is that he had been a bounty hunter and had four justifiable homicides on his record. Yeah. And uh, I remember, as XPW would do, that we took advantage of that. And there was a T-shirt that said, four justifiable homicides, would you like to be number five? And that was on a T-shirt. Oh, shit. And that was just, I, I didn't think that up, but that's just brilliant. Um, so New Jack smashing this guy in the face with a glass was didn't wasn't shocking to anybody. But it's fantastic that it happened i thought it was great the guy that i didn't like at work was out for two weeks and i saw pictures of him looking like a raccoon with bandages across his nose amazing Uh, yeah but oh but what i started to say was is is that is a story that i had forgotten to tell the dark side of the ring guys and i sent an email to the producer and he was like oh that's amazing i'm gonna see new jack tomorrow because we're shooting him so i'll bring it up and when i had gone in for my interview uh, I, I could tell that they were referencing my pre-interview because they were asking me stuff. Oh, so uh, is the, you know, was there a problem with this one thing when it happened? And you know, so it was kind of you know setting up the questions. And they said, uh, oh, so was there a problem with a, a pre-party that happened before the freefall show? And I, oh, okay, great. <laughs> so I was, tell, I was telling the story, and the guys off camera are laughing, like because they had yeah. actually filmed New Jack's interview. So they're kind of like snickering and stuff. And I kind of, you know, break for a minute and I kind of lean to the side. I'm like, is the story matching up? And they went word for word. This is exactly new. Jack told us this story yesterday. So I can only hope that with editing our stories go together. Yeah. New Jack and I are telling this story about this, this pre-party incident. So amazing. man. um, but yeah, the dark side of the ring thing was was a lot of fun, and I hope I hope there's something in there that's good, and I hope I don't look ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sure it will be amazing, Mikey. There's, don't think at this point there's any way they couldn't use it. Couldn't be. <laughs> Hi, we just want to give a shout out to everybody that has made it this far. It's been a long podcast, and we really hope you enjoyed it. Want to give a shout out and thanks, big thanks again to Mike Hartsfield for giving us two and a half hours of his time, especially after previously just doing a three-hour one right before us. If you need to get in touch with Mike, you can do that at www.newagerecords.net, on Instagram, at New Age Records, and at Mike Hartsfield, on Facebook, facebook.com slash New Age Records. 
And be sure to check out the Here Till It Ends podcast as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at Instagram at we underscore gotta underscore no underscore podcast. The Facebook at www.facebook.com slash we gotta know podcast. And you can check out www.anchor.fm slash we gotta know podcast, which is like our homepage and has all the episodes we've done so far and some information there. Please support the podcast by giving us a like, subscribe, shoot us a quick review, and even leave us an audio message if you want. Keep your eyes and ears open for episode number four. Take care.